You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode one, one, well, how many? I don't know. We stopped, we've been together too long. We haven't been together long enough. It's been too long. I can't remember what number we are on. 127, let's call it. I think that's it. All right. (laughs) Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and episode numbers. (laughs) <laughs> uh, oh we have a slack too uh that you can hit us up at and uh you can uh email us at comments at codingblocks.net too i got left out man and oh. you can follow us on twitter at coding blocks or you can head to www.codingblocks.net i actually trademarked that and you can find all our social links there at the top of the page with that i'm alan underwood i'm joe zach and i'm michael outlaw This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a unified monitoring and analytics platform built for developers, IT operations teams, and businesses in the cloud age, and Educative.io. Level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. And Clubhouse is the fast and enjoyable project management platform that breaks down silos and brings teams together to ship value, not just features. All right. And today we are talking about the data structures that power databases uh, based on the third chapter of signing data intensive applications. And this is my favorite chapter uh, so far. And so I'm very excited about it and glad you're here to be with us on this journey. Hey, in fairness, each chapter that you read after the previous one was your favorite one, right? Like that's kind of yes. how it happened. Yeah. So, but I have read chapters since this one. Oh, okay. this is still the one that like sticks out to me. So there's other chapters that I like, but this was the one where I was like, all right, let me get the popcorn. All right. I dig it. Uh, well, I mean, I've got an opinion on that. I, I would say that I'm not saying that the other chapters were bad, but compared to like past books that we've covered and everything, I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. I mean, it's it's not, it's good stuff. What? It was good stuff. This is my favorite book that I've read so far. But this chapter All that this. we are about to cover tonight. Oh, you you okay? That's good. Oh my god! You, you have you. There is some special. This one. Love. This one. This is like the one chapter. Like if if you only have one chapter of anything that you are ever going to read for the rest of your life, <laughs> and you want to be a developer. You need to read this chapter. It's good. It is it is not only is it good, it's that good is what you meant to say. Yeah, yeah. I corrected that for you. Yeah. Because like I think back on it and I'm like, man, I wish I had this chapter at the start of my career. Mm. It, it yeah, we'll get into why here shortly. Yeah. But first Okay, so <laughs> yeah, but first, uh, you know, as we like to do, we like to, you know, say thank you to everybody that let took the time out of their busy day to leave us a review. So from iTunes, we have the Luntz Force, Brian Morrison, me, collector of much stuff, Momentum Mori, Brian Briefree, uh, Isla Dar. Oh, you put the L before the Y. You can't do that. You I got, put the L got, before the Y. Re- oh, uh, is, is Isla? It- <laughs> <laughs> Why? Don't laugh at me. How about Isildar or Isildar? Okay, there you go. that's what I was going to say. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then, and then, <laughs> James Speaker. There we go. All right, and I got to say a big thanks to I Diggly. I appreciate those reviews. You know, we live for those. So thank you very much. 
Yeah. And like, okay. So I don't know if you gathered some of my excitement at the start, right? But I think it's been a minute since the three of us have been together. It's been a little while. Yeah. Like at least a month. It's been kind of crazy. And it feels like it's, well, it's actually feels like it's been longer than that though. Right. Because yeah, in recording wise, it might've been a month, but that's, you know, tack on another two weeks Mm -hmm. or so before that. So like, it's been, it's been a while since the three of us have gotten together. We've all been crazy, crazy busy. So, and, and I think even the last episode that we recorded, we weren't together. Like, I think you had to record remotely if I remember right. So we might, this might be the first time this year. Know, I'm like, I'm like giddy. Like my friends are over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mom, can you spend the night? <laughs> yeah. That's a great segue to say that we're actually going to be hanging out in meat space at Orlando Code camp coming up March 28th this year. And registration is open by the time you hear this and it's free. And so not only get to hang out with us, but free lunch and free shirt. So if you are anywhere within travel distance to Orlando on the 28th, you should come on down because it's going to be awesome. Uh, looking at about like a hundred talks from uh, a ton of speakers. It's going to be fantastic. 14 different rooms, uh, just jam packed with uh, free, awesome, great talks and us. And us. And, and we went down to it last year and I think both of us spoke at it as well there. And it, it really is a great event. Like, uh, Santosh and the people who put that thing together over there, like they do a killer job. So definitely come. I mean, you'll, you'll learn a lot of stuff and, and it's fun. And I'm giving some sort of talk on Kubernetes and Joe, you're giving some sort of talk on. We're going to be tracking UFOs with, uh, streaming architectures, Kafka <laughs> and GraphQL. Very nice. Technically, we all three spoke at that conference, if you recall. <laughs> Oh, Allah did a lot of speaking. He did a, but he did a no, lot no, of no, talking. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about at the booth. I'm talking about like in the rooms, remember? Oh, you were part yeah, of the panel. Well, that's we can't right. really count that because you showed up like in the last three minutes of like that Like a thing. boss. <laughs> he he was not fashionably he late. He was not fashionably late. He showed up. Hey, and he did get end. carried out of the, the pre-party uh, almost by a guy. Uh, <laughs> you were on his shoulders. He was like taking you off to some cooler party. I don't know. That was weird. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely telling this like in a weird way. Uh, yeah, go meet us for drinks. We'll tell you the full story. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, so. So, so definitely, if you're going to be in the area, come come hang out with us. Come talk to us. You know, we definitely love to meet you all and and come to our talks. Hopefully, they'll be good. Yeah, you'll definitely find me at the booth. So definitely stop by, say hi. Uh, I'm sure I'll have some swag there for you to pick up. And this year, people won't be writing their email addresses down, right? Like that stuff. We might have upgraded. It'll be a much smoother experience. Can't read your handwriting. <laughs> so uh, also I want to mention for this episode, uh, go ahead and drop that comment on the website and uh, you will be eligible to win a free book that we'll ship to you. International is totally fine. We love it, in fact. So uh, go ahead and do that right now while you're thinking about it. And that book would be Designing Data Intensive Applications, as that is the topic we are covering. And the most exciting chapter that we're going to dig in tonight, Storage and Retrieval. Now and we should say we're not going to finish that chapter tonight because you know how we do. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, how do we do? You know how we do. <laughs> Very longly. Yeah. But I know what you're thinking because you're like, outlaw, hold on. How can storage and retrieval be the most exciting chapter of the book? And like the chapter that the single chapter of any book that you should ever read. It, it is. <laughs> Have you ever wondered how databases work? That's why it's, uh, I mean, 
Yeah. Let, let me put it to you like this. Uh, we've each been in our careers for a minute <clears throat> and, uh, you know, been using databases. Did you ever think to take the time to think about like how the data was being written to disk? No. Right. It's something easy to overlook, right? Well, you yeah, just I assumed it was boring. Right. Yeah. That's the thing, right? Is you assume that, well, I mean, they figured all this out. Why do I need to think about it? I just need to think about the SQL queries. There's the, th- there's the thing. They've figured it out. Why do I have to think about how they did it? Right. right? I don't, right? Like, why do I care? I don't care. They All, all I got to do is focus on, like, does my query perform? Do I need to add an index? Is there already an index there I can use? Blah, blah, blah. Yep. And, and we it, already mentioned how I incorrectly think that we are in the golden age of database systems. <laughs> because that's not actually what golden age means. But I still feel that way because there are so many good choices to make. And it seems like we had a kind of explosion of them a couple of years ago. And uh, after kind of reading this chapter and, and, you know, reading the rest of this book, like I feel like I understand why there are so many, why they have differences, why there isn't just been one to rule them all and why they all exist and the, the kinds of trade-offs and things you have to consider when choosing one. And uh, by looking at like a deep kind of deep dive on how it works underneath, I feel like I'm able to tie it into other things I've known about like data structures and algorithms, trees, things like that, that I, you know, I kind of know a little bit about. And so like bringing these two things together, two worlds that I know a bit about and finding a common commonality between them has just been really exciting. And, and I don't want to take anything that's coming up, but like that was definitely one of the things that I loved about this chapter was that it does talk about, it basically is like, okay, hey, let's just think about this. Like, what if we had to start from scratch and write our own database from scratch? Mm-hmm. Like, where, where where might we start? Right. Right. And he starts off with just writing a key value pair to uh, to a flat file using two simple uh, bash functions that that he creates in in his script, right? And just starting out small, and then starts building on there, and then as the chapter progresses and moves on, then the more complicated concepts that like that Joe just mentioned, where he starts talking about where you, you would start to think about like, Hey, this is where other data structures might be beneficial, right? This is where a B tree might be helpful. This is where an LSM tree might be beneficial. Like those start, those things start to like crop into the conversation. Right. Just so organically. But do you think, I mean, just to set the ground here, do you think that this is more interesting to us now because because data is now so massive? It's such a big part of what we do that that we've moved past the point of just SQL was enough to where we need to understand that stuff because those choices of the systems that you implement or you adopt actually have a huge impact on on how things work. Is that why this stuff is now feels more important to us? Yeah, I keep wondering, like, is this so interesting to me because it's like so interesting or is it just because it's like literally interesting to me because of like its relevance to my day to day life? And I, I don't know the answer. Um, I am guessing by the, you know, the comments and feedback where they've been getting that a lot of people find, uh, find it very interesting too. So, um, you know, we've got that going for us, I guess. Yeah, true. I, I think for me, it's just a, um, a, part of it is just having taken things for granted. Mm. Like, like, I mean, it's one thing to even talk about, like, did you ever care about how a database is written to disk? Did you ever think to care about how a cube is written? Right. Right. Like, yeah. Like who care? Like OLAP. I don't care. Right. right. 
or at least I never thought about it before. And now I, you know, reading this, I'm like, oh man, that's so awesome. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'll tie this into some of the stuff that I know that Joe and I have been working on is you look at things like uh, a technology from Google Cloud is called BigQuery. And one of its claims to fame or one of the reasons why people want to use it is because they wrote their own storage format for the data that comes in because it enables them to do faster analytical queries and that kind of stuff, right? So that's all stuff that ties into what we'll be talking about here and what we'll be continuing on as we get on through this chapter. So um, I guess with that, let's go ahead and start with just some some basics, right? Because uh, get everybody on the same playing field here. Yeah, so uh, I, you know, I went to Wikipedia and looked up what a database actually was because um, you know we throw that term around a lot, and I think a lot of times uh, people will have kind of um, well, just think of the databases that they're kind of used to using. But I really wanted to kind of hone in on the definition because this book kind of starts separating things a little bit and talking about the the various different parts, particularly like the storage engine and like the query engine. Like a couple episodes, we talked about specifically the, the languages, and we talked about even how some graph databases like you can swap in and out like the the language and the syntax they're using, and it is responsible for mapping that to what it actually performs underneath. And so, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of go take a look. And the basic definition, no matter where you look it up, uh, it's basically just like, yeah, it's organized data, and sometimes you can access it. And that's kind of it. So, you know, that the example that Outlaw mentioned of uh, writing with bash, bash shells, uh, bash scripts to basically just update a file, like, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's kind of a database. That's it. Just a collection of data. And then yeah, and when you talk to a developer about it, though, of course, when you say a database, like we've got these kind of these preconceived notions, like, uh, we're generally talking about a database management system at that point. We're talking about the database, yes, but we're also talking about like the APIs and all the things that kind of go around with that, like the the query languages and you know even like the ways like you uh, can organize that data, either like sharding or partitioning or, or accessing um, the way you control access to it, like whether you know like users or um, what you can do, like how permissions work, stuff like that. So those are the kind of things that we usually think of when we talk about databases. We're really talking about that whole system there. I guarantee you, if you asked any member of your team, your development team, hey, I need you to go create me a new database, no one is going to start with a file, right? <laughs> right. They're going to immediately jump off to like whatever the uh, platform of choices that, that your group already uses, be it Postgres or SQL Server or Oracle, whatever, MySQL, they're going to jump into that and that's what they're going to create. That's going to be your database, right? Notice... Access, Microsoft Access doesn't count, <laughs> right? Even though technically it is. It technically meets the definition here. It, so one thing I want to point out is we, we said database management system. There's actually two kind of big flavors of these things that are worth calling out is you'll typically see them called either RDBMSs for relational database systems. So all the ones that Outlaw just said a second ago, SQL Server, Oracle, MySQL, Postgres. Those are relational database systems, right? And then you have the other ones that we've talked about in previous um, episodes that are your NoSQL or your document databases, right? So your MongoDBs, uh, I think CouchDB falls in there. There's there's a lot of those, right? So so they're both database management systems because they both have those APIs and those access controls and all that kind of stuff. But there are different technologies sitting on top of them that turn them to either relational or document database storage. So just just keep that in your head that it's still a database system is nothing more than a collection of data, right? And how it's stored is the big difference in how it's, how it's used. 
Yeah, and you know what you mentioned out a lot about how you know someone says create a new database, and I go to SQL Server and I right click and, and I do that. Uh, but what's funny is like depending on what databases you're using, the, some of the more modern ones are multi-model now. So if it comes to like uh, Cosmos and say create a new database, it's like okay, well tell me a little bit about your use cases. Uh, same with Dynamo, and even you know uh, like MySQL has different storage engines that are better for different things, and so it's just kind of funny to see that uh, our world is expanding, which can be frustrating because those are all new things that need to we need to understand and there's trade-offs associated with each of those decisions, but it's also an exciting time to live. You know, there's things that are evolving and growing and things that we can do easily now that were really hard to do a couple of years ago. Yeah. When you started to go down the, the path of the two systems for some reason, like I wasn't even thinking about uh, relational versus document, even though that was just a topic of a recent episode that we did, I thought you were going to go down the path of uh, uh, OLTP versus OLAP. Mm-hmm. Right, like I, I just assume that's where you, you know. So maybe there's three. Uh, the, the, yeah, there's even more. I mean, it, it, have we talked about that on the this show? I don't uh, OLAP, I don't know in no, depth, but in yeah, depth. okay, we will. It's be. coming up in this chapter. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, I don't think we're going to get there tonight, though. Maybe we'll. I don't know. We'll see. So it'll be a surprise. Let let let's you know keep hope alive, man. Hey, one, right. one thing to to point out here, though, is like Joe said, things are changing a lot. Keep your eyes open. I've actually got a blog post coming out about that, right? Be aware of the things that are out there. Don't just do what you've always done because you've always done it, right? That doesn't necessarily make sense. Look at what the use case is and pick the tools that, that make sense. This way. Right? <laughs> oh, man. We've always used VB. <laughs> and so uh tonight we're definitely Tybee says that's in. a big one you should you should use that one i don't that 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 app or that page hasn't been updated in like 10 years i'm pretty sure oh, <laughs> so uh tonight we're going to be focused being uh on how things are basically stored and received and we're gonna we're gonna start going down this path well first one is kind of talking about why you should care about how the data is stored and received and um, retreated. and that's like kind of something I like before reading the book. I would have thought like, well, I have no plans or interest in competing with Oracle or SQL Server or whatever. So why should I care? Like, is it enough to know that how to perform well and how to write good queries and and how to use the analyzer and stuff in order to you know get the performance that way? Why should I care? But uh, kind of what I'm getting at is that you also need to be able to make choices about which storage engines to use. And if you don't understand the trade-offs and why, like say an elastic is good at some things and um, the things that it's bad at too, then it's really easy to get kind of either suckered by marketing or to go with the decision that kind of by default rather than making the best decision. So I think it's important to kind of have that knowledge. And it's also just really fun <laughs> to, to understand. Well, the part that I liked was the actual statement from the book. Hey, just because you're not going to create your own, storage engine from scratch doesn't mean that you shouldn't understand it because like you said, it'll help you choose things better, right? Like, yeah, like you said earlier, you, when was the last time that you were like, Hey, somebody, we need a database and you're like, all right, I'm going to go write some bash shell scripts, right? Like that's not what happens. So, but understanding it is hugely important. I think, I mean, this whole chapter is all about, it, it focuses mostly on, like how you can optimize things for writes and how you can optimize things for reads and then where the trade-offs or balances are between the two those two needs in different paradigms that might exist right and with the goal of by the time you finish this chapter you should at least have enough 
of an understanding that you can then pick which technology best meets what your main use case that you're trying to solve is going to be. If the thing that you're trying to solve is going to be, I need very fast reads and the writes are less important, right? Then at least you can have an understanding as to like what you should be looking for in your, your engine. You know, I like to always bring up that course I took on educative, um, grokking the system design interview. You would not believe how many times when you're reading through like the Twitters or Ubers or, or whatever's, uh, architectures, the, the question of what data storage boils, uh, you know, that you're going to use boils down to first deciding what your read and write traffic looks like. Because that informs it, like it lets you pick a whole kind of category. And then when you start thinking about, uh, what you're going to query and whether it's like transactional or basically doing ad, uh, aggregations and analytical, that's like a whole another category. So you can just eliminate a huge number of choices by knowing those two things alone. And it's really exciting to kind of see like, oh, if I start with these things, like I can immediately kind of hone in on some things. And I bet if you kind of take a look at slicing your business use cases on whatever you're working on today and kind of slicing things that way and thinking about what you're really doing with your use cases, you might quickly figure out that you are using a suboptimal solution. And that could be fine. You know, maybe it's working fine for you. It doesn't mean it's, you know, that you shouldn't still do that because, you know, you've got experience with it or you've already got it or whatever. But it's still, it's good to know that like, hey, there are tools that are specifically designed for the things that I'm doing. And, and you know, hopefully if, if you know, if we've done it right and if this, this all works, then you should be struggling with the things that that system is, you know, traditionally bad with or where those mismatches are, where the requirements don't quite work, the storage engine that you've got. And you should be probably feeling some some contention there. And this will kind of explain why and what you could do about it. And maybe it can't be stressed enough that in case if you weren't already trying other things or didn't already know, like you shouldn't just rely on like, say your SQL server instance to try to be your everything. But you know what, to be fair, and I agree with that, but here's the reason why people do is over time, the SQL servers, the oracles of the world, even the, the Postgres's, they've turned into Swiss army knives, mm-hmm. right? Like if you need to schedule a job, it's built into it. Mm-hmm. If you need to do some analytical type stuff, you can do it. The, the, the SQL syntax is there. So it's understandable that everybody's latched on to those things and they don't want to walk away from them because – if you know how to write a query, then you're like, hey, I know how to get out of this thing what I want to get out of it, right? But what Joe just said and what Michael's getting at as well, the important part is it might be suboptimal. So, yeah, it'll work, right? How many times did you fight that thing where it's like, oh, the query is now taking 30 seconds? You know, it used to take half a second. Oh, well, you've pushed it past what it should do. Now it's an online transactional database and it's your reporting database and it's your analysis database. So, so now it's doing all these things and it's doing them all suboptimally now because they're all contention, uh, you know, contending for those same resources. So, so it's fair to know that you're probably doing it, but you're probably doing it because they built them to be able to do all this stuff, even though they might not be the ideal solution for it. Yeah, it, it it's um similar to what so what Jeff Atwood has said that your comment about like yeah it it the are Swiss army knives but it is can be suboptimal in other uh, at other scales which is similar to what Jeff Atwood has said that everything is fast for small n. Right. So, yeah, you might be able to get away with text searching in SQL Server which is a feature. 
right? And, you know, if it's not at, at a large scale, that might be fine. Mm-hmm. It might be good enough. Yep. And you but know for an Uber? Right, yeah, they can't do it. And that, you know, I actually really like that Swiss Army knife analogy because, you know, Swiss Army knives have those like little screwdrivers on them. And you can totally unscrew a screw with that thing, and you will be frustrated by the mm. time that you're done with it. But it'd be a whole lot easier if you just had a Phillips head screwdriver that you could go do it. They'll both get the job done, but one's going to give you a lot better experience than the other, right? But the bonus is it comes with a toothpick, so you're probably okay. It does. It yeah. does. I mean, that makes up for it. Yeah. And what is the toothpick in SQL Server? Do we know? Ooh. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Leave a comment. Let us know. Yeah, You'll right, book. Right. All right. All right. And so uh, in this chapter, you should have a lot more knowledge about how to kind of choose and evaluate storage engines. And uh, that's really powerful and really interesting. So now it's time to get into the fun stuff, right? Like where we start digging into what is actually happening. So, yeah, this is this is the part where where you'll kind of get an appreciation for it. So in, in the example that outlaw started with earlier, where there were two bash statements, right. And one that was, you know, right. And I think another one was get mm-hmm. the way that it works is it's an append only file, right? So you have this text file and every time you go to write a record, you have a key and you have a value is the way that they're going about it in the book. Right. And let's just say that the key is your name and the value is I don't know, a document about you, a contact information, right? So you have outlaw that's going to write a line. It's going to have outlaw as the key. And then the value is going to be his contact information, right? Alan, same thing. Joe, same thing. The the important part here is it's always write only, right? You don't or go append only you mean. or append only. Yeah. yeah. Good point. <clears throat> You're always basically opening up that file, writing to the very end of it, closing the file. So every time if, if I update my address, then I have a new line at the bottom of that file, and I'm now in there twice. Yeah. Now, here's the beauty of that approach. Because if all you're ever doing is appending to the end of the file, all you have to do from a write perspective is just seek to the end of the file, boom, add your new line, and you're done. So what you're describing is a a, a write-enhanced file format. Mm-hmm. You're just appending to the end of the file. And super duper fast. Like you said, it seeks to the end. It already knows where it is. It, I, oh, every operating system on the planet is highly efficient at doing this. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, most uh, file systems, you know, there's some differences, but uh, they'll have a pointer to where the file starts and they'll have like a size or, you know, basically some sort of indicator of where it ends. So just like array access, you can hop right to the end. Even better, if you go ahead, just leave a thread open and with that file open and just have that one writer constantly streaming data to it, you can even skip those steps. So all it is doing is just moving data, you know, into that file. And, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like zero copy, but basically there, there's a couple of ways you can kind of, um, short circuit a couple of things in operating systems, modern operating systems, where you can actually skip running through RAM if you're writing like to a file. So you can go directly from like a network card to disk. Which is crazy, and there's some, some caveats around there, but that's kind of the the gist of it. So, I mean, we we're talking about super duper ridiculously optimized. Like, can't really imagine a better way to to write data. Yep, and one of the things that they like to call out in this particular section is this file that we're talking about is called a log. So. Typically, as application developers, we think of logs as, oh, that's where the web server log is, or that's where this log is. My that's application where, log. Yeah, my debug output, whatever. I'm using you know, uh, Apache log for net, right. log for J. 
all log means is a write-only <clears throat> file, right? So it, that's what they're talking about. Append only. An append only, yes, not write-only. An append only, always writing to the end of it. So that's the important part. So they call it a log, and the thing here that is key also is it doesn't have to be human readable. And in many cases, it's not because it's not the most efficient way to store that data. Ooh, there's some beautiful ways they talk about later. Yeah. So, so just be aware log and not human readable, but it is append only. And there's pointers to those, those keys or those records. Right. And already you can start to like make connections in your mind. Cause then they, you, you know, you start talking about, well, it's a log. And you're like, Oh, transaction log. Transaction mm-hmm. log, that's yeah. the thing. Transaction for, logs. for all databases. We're, we're talking about databases here, transaction yep. logs. And they're, we're already starting with like a very quick definition of this log. Yes, we were talking about the very beginnings of what an actual database is. Yeah, it's it's funny that like you said, let's talk about RDBSs. And then you start talking about logs. Instantly, I, like my mind was like kind of like, who cares? Okay, I guess we're getting to, you know, like uh, how transactional systems work. But no, it's like, it's literally talking about the ways to, to quickly write data. And the deal is, and the reason that, you know, in addition to just being efficient and good at appending, is that if you think about the, the opposite, if you are going and writing to a spot in a file, that means you have to seek for it. You have to find it. You have to go to it. If that information is larger than the information that you're updating, then you've got to make room by basically shifting everything else to the right. And if it's smaller, same thing. You have to shift all this data. So it's uh, grossly inefficient compared to appending. So we're not talking about like a micro optimization here. We're talking about, you know, essentially an order of magnitude difference over, you know, appending. Hey, when we talk about this thing, you know, as a log, um, does anyone else think of Ren and Stimpy? While no. we're talking about it, <laughs> log, log. What rolls uh, downstairs, <laughs> alone or in pairs, <laughs> and over your neighbor's dog. <laughs> for fun, it's a wonderful toy. What's it's fun for, for a girl little boy. It's on your back. <laughs> yeah. Long, you know, I, like, I just think of, like, uh, all the time, like, countless hours of my life I've, like, wasted, like, like sifting through logs when it, the problem was, like, glaringly obvious in retrospect. Wait, you don't think about Ren and Stimpy? Even when he said that, you didn't think about it. You know, I do, but it's like number four on the list. Okay, fair enough. All right. So, four. <laughs> so, we got Yuletide logs. We got um, also other logs. All right. So, the next thing we had so, you talked about writing into the middle is way more expensive, right? Like, order of magnitude more expensive. Well, this is also where they start talking about reading from a log is highly inefficient, right? So, we talked about the fact that. This whole append only thing is amazing. It's fast. You go straight to the spot. You put in your new data. Now, if I say, Hey, I want to get Alan's contact information right now, you got to scan through the entire file from depend. We, we get into more things right now. We, we get into more things later, but right now in what we've talked about, if you wanted to go retrieve a record from that log, mm-hmm. you're going to go from the very top of it and scan it all the way. Until you get to the last record, and then you're going to return the one. Like you're going to find, you know, Alan's record in there, and then you're going to return the last one that you got. And and, and you're kind of like uh, skipping over something, but it's important though. Okay. When you say the last one that you got, because as we mentioned with this append only log, you made the example of like where you could, if you updated your entry, it was in there a second time. Right. And so that's why it's important. Like. I don't know. Maybe you updated it 50 times. Right. Right. But it's the last one that you really want. Cause that's the one that has the, 
you know, most correct information. Now, in this example file that we're talking about, our, our contact database, you know, so far we've only really talked about like two records of real interest in there that you put in there, like yours and mine. But, you know, there might be every name in the United States right. inside of that thing. And think about how many times an individual might change or update their contact information, right? If you had to then go and scan that and you're like, okay, well, I need Alan Underwood's last entry. Right. And and the important part here is it, you have to scan it, right? Now, maybe there's some sort of hyper-efficient way to reverse your way through a file. I don't know. I haven't really had to deal with that kind of stuff that much. But the key is you're scanning through it. You don't know where things are. And if you've ever worked with like, um, what are they called? Uh, something plans, uh, query plans in a database, you'll typically see something that says it did an index scan or it did an index seek. If it did an index scan, it went through every single record, right? And, and that's what we're saying. This whole read, we've said that this thing is highly optimized for a write is not very efficient for a read up to this point. Mm-hmm. And an example like here is like, um, you know, like the National Weather Service has like things all over the place, like measuring wind speed and humidity and temperature just all over the, you know, the U.S. And, uh, you know, that that's all sending data really quickly and we don't want to lose stuff. So there's uh, some sort of logger, some sort of fashion ingestion system that's taking all that data. But if someone wants to know what the temperature is in Oviedo, Florida, then that's a terrible system to read from you know because like you said it's going to be at the end because there's you know repeats and if you want to know the temperature now and you kind of want to start you know at the end and kind of move backwards and so it's just uh it's not optimized for that and if that's an operation that you'd be you know doing all the time then you don't want to wait four minutes for it to you know parse through that large file to find that information oh so you want to use something that's more appropriate for reading although you can still take it in in the fast way Yep, totally. And and let me back up here. I said that you could reverse your way through a file, right? That's assuming that you know that my record is closer to the end, right? Like mm-hmm. my record could have been the very first record in the file. The problem is you wouldn't know until you yeah. went through it. This right? is an append only, so we don't know. Right. Yeah. So and, – And to Joe's point, though, like <clears throat> he's kind of highlighting already where you can see uh, justifications for wanting a – write optimized system versus a read optimized system mm-hmm. that yeah with all the thousands of sensors that might exist out there in Joe's weather example you could see why you might want a write optimized system available for that data to go into but you would then use some other system to say like hey what's the local weather yep or some other format like it wouldn't be the same system which we might get into here in just a moment well, you know, even the resolution matters. Like you might have different systems. Like, you know, if I'm looking at the temperature, I want to know what temperature was like maybe right now. And maybe I want to know what it's probably going to be like tomorrow. If you're like a storm chaser and you're studying hurricanes, you maybe want to watch that, how the temperature changes over the course of 11 minutes as the tornado comes in or something, you know, so you want to get a lot of checkpoints. And so the, just the resolution, the fidelity uh, that you want to look at that data means a, a lot to you. And so it'd be nice if you could have potentially different systems that are optimized for those use cases because sometimes you care a lot about the inter- intermediary values and sometimes you don't. Well, I want options. That's right. And so this is where we start getting into some more some more of the the next steps in building your own system, right? So 
So this whole problem of, of trying to find a record in this data set, scanning, we've already said, is not optimal. And in many cases, could be the worst, right? Like it could be O, o of N, right? you got to go through every single record to find the one that you need. So the way that you solve this problem is with indexes, right? And And all this is is another data structure to store data. And we probably most commonly know it as basically a hash table, right? So the whole thing of an index is, all right, so I know that the last time that I wrote Alan, he was in position five in this file. You're going to have a hash table that has Alan as the key. And instead of storing the record, it's going to have five saying, hey, this is the position where you can go to in the file to get that information. Yeah, like the example with the, the temperature too, you know, like if you know that the way you're going to be using this data most often is associated closely with a location, then it might make sense to you to have an index somewhere that basically keeps track of where that information is sorted by location. So you might be able to go to the index and say, I need info on Atlanta. And it says, you know, here's information on how to seek to places that contain Atlanta that make it so you don't have to scan through that whole big file. And you can just jump to this location or these 10 locations or, or whatever, some some information that makes that quicker. And uh, that's a huge value when it comes to writing. And it doesn't slow your ingestion down. It just means that you have to take on the additional overhead of maintaining these indexes. And, and this is another one of those cases where it when we talk about like how other data structures could come into play here, and like why it's important, right? So Alan described this hash map that we, you know, with basically a key Alan and then a value, which is the offset to go look in the main data file for Alan's contact information, right? If you think back to the past episodes that we've talked about, on average, a hash table lookup is O of one. Mm-hmm. So you're already talking about like a extremely fast operation. You went from O of N, which... If you, it, well, like it's not even said, O of N, right? It, well, it's O of like, because in our, in our append only file, more. who knows how many times Alan well, has been updated? Well, so it'd still be O of N, but let's a say some N, but not the some, total number of right. contacts, total number Correct. of updates. So let's say that you had all the people in America, right? 330 million people, right? And let's say that they were in there twice. O right. of the N is 660 million yeah. scans. We're saying that with this hash table, it's one. You go straight to the record. On average. On average. Yeah. Now, there is worst case. Right. We won't talk about it, but it's O of N. Um, but it, so something you said, though, Joe, is you said that this does not impact write performance. And I don't know if that's true. So, yeah, it depends. So right? the, And that's where some of the, the different systems and, the, and things start kind of taking uh, different approaches on things based on what they care about the most. So there are systems that will not – uh, kind of log the data until that index has been processed. And, and so it kind of doesn't mark this thing as done and move on to the next until, uh, until it's ready. But I think, uh, I don't know the most, I guess the kind of loggers that I'm thinking about are so afraid, you know, about missing a message that, uh, usually they'll kind of defer to writing things down in the log immediately and then processing after. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, there's, um, sometimes when people talk about like queues or, uh, which are a kind of data storage uh, system that are really care about write speeds. Sometimes we'll talk about messages that um, are queues that focus on uh, guaranteeing at least once delivery, meaning it never drops a message. So like it's going to, in everything they do, they're going to try really hard to always make sure they get the data no matter what, even if it's slow, even if it's uh, not processed or whatever, they're always going to defer to that. 
And you have the other kind, which is uh, uh, at most once delivery, which is the opposite where it like it defers to never having more than one message. So it, it kind of makes different trade-offs. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's even other specialties that kind of branch off from there. So uh, I do want to be careful about kind of making generalizations there. But for the most part, you can think of, um, you know, the logging itself being fast, but that data being accessible being more of a question mark. So it depends on the storage engine. And this is why I wanted to bring it out, right? So first, let's let's back up and also talk about the fact that an index is based off the original data. So anytime that you're indexing data, you get that original record in, you're trying to create a fast lookup to it for the read performance. It's deriving that index based off the original data. Now, this is why I said it depends on the storage engine. If you're talking about an online transactional database like SQL Server, Oracle, Postgres, those type of things, the more indexes you have, the slower your write is because be, because it is an ACID compliant or whatever transactional system. When it writes that record, it also has to write all those indexes before it marks it as done. So yeah, good point. So we used the simple thing of our names earlier as the key, right? Typically, when you're indexing things, you might also index it by additional stuff, right? So, so maybe when we wrote our contact information, we had, we had our first name as the key initially, but then the entire record had our first, middle, last name. It also had our address. It had the zip code, all that kind of stuff. You might want to add additional indexes. You might want to find all the people that live in a particular zip code, right? Well, if you think about, I mean, basically, it's almost like we're describing, if if we really want to talk about a phone book. Yeah, and at that point, there it's a composite key, which is what you're describing when you use more than one field. And in that case, it's last name, first name, address Mm -hmm. is the composite key in the phone book. Yep. And so here's the key part that I'm getting at here is you can't you don't just have to think about it as one thing, right? So when we were talking about appending to this file, we were talking about there's a key and there's a value. An index doesn't only have to be the key, right? So you could actually have another index that's derived off that data that says, hey, I want to create an index that's based off the zip code. And so now you create a new index and it's going to keep pointers to all those other records where all those people lived in that same zip code. So that's why the write performance actually does suffer because as you write that first record, depending on how many indexes you have backing that for search, it's having to go in and update all those locations and all those indexes as well. Am I remembering it wrong? There wasn't there like a portion in this chapter where he was basically describing another other systems though. And this is, might be where you were saying like the engine mat- matters because I, I thought I recalled him describing another one where uh, it was just writing to this transaction log and it was used for crash recovery. Like it, it, it could pick back up after the fact and con- then continue back to rebuild indexes and whatnot as necessary. That was based off it snapshotting things as it went. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was different recovery models and that was actually the pros and cons of doing some of these systems. So, so yeah, at any rate that going back to this, that's the trade-off. You have fast write speeds. If you need increased read speeds with this particular format we're talking about right now, you take a hit on the write as you write your indices or or keep track of your indices. Yeah, that's a good point. I was kind of focusing uh, kind of extra on like specifically like logger type systems there. And, but you're, you're totally right about all that. And I just want to point out if you ever uh, go to take like a cloud certification test, then if you ever see like a question that begins with like, the customer you're working with has 10,000 IoT devices. 
you can automatically rule out relational database as one of the answers. <laughs> it's not the case. It's not meant for ingesting that kind of uh, fast data. It's just not meant for that sort of thing. And it's going to fall over. So a little tidbit there. That's hilarious. Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides customizable dashboards, log management, and machine learning-based alerts in one fully integrated platform so you can seamlessly navigate, pinpoint, and resolve performance issues in context. Monitor all your databases, cloud services, containers, and serverless functions in one place with Datadog's 400-plus vendor-backed integrations. If an outage occurs, Datadog provides seamless navigation between your logs, infrastructure metrics, and application traces in just a few clicks to minimize downtime. So go try it yourself today by starting a free 14-day trial and receive a Datadog t-shirt after installing the agent. Visit datadoghq.com slash codingblocks to see how you can enhance visibility into your stack with Datadog. That URL, again, was datadoghq.com slash codingblocks. Okay, well, how about we get into my favorite portion of the show? It's time for a joke. Ah, <laughs> uh, you didn't see that one coming, did you? I didn't. I like no. it. All right. Uh, so our buddy James on Slack uh, sent me this one, and I was like, oh, this is so great. And so topical, too. What, were we talking about the cynical developer? Yes, that would be Damn that would be it. the one. Um, right. Thank you. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Another great podcast. Yes. Yeah. How do you know how much space Brexit will free up for the EU? I I don't. I don't, I hope it runs the Brexit. That's all I know. One GB. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, man, James. That guy really knows his onions. So I gotta say that. Yeah. Um, All right. So uh, that's that's actually really good. Yeah. So obviously, it's time for survey says. All right. So uh, a few episodes back, we asked the question that people really wanted to have an answer to: which sci-fi series is best? And the choices were Star Trek. Damn it, Jim! I'm a doctor, not a doc. Oh. Okay, fine. Or Star Wars. Han shot first. And I think this was, I think we did this survey around the time that, because uh, it's been a minute. I think this was around the time of, uh, what was the last movie? Can you remember the name? Now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the Last you. Jedi? The Last Jedi. Thank yeah, you. There we go. Last Styles. Yeah. <laughs> the last what? The last guy, Jack. last Skywalker, last there. guy. But I, it was like right around the time the Mandalorian was coming out too, which I think is probably biased. Maybe the survey. Oh, okay. The Mandalorian. I guess we'll see. Really good. Well, right, go ahead. Well, let's see then. So um, let's say we all. <laughs> so, so we'll go ahead. And Joe's already throwing his opinions out there, so we'll let Alan go first. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. No, I didn't. <laughs> so I'm going to say Star Wars. Han shot first. Uh, we'll go with, I mean, there's only two chances, so I got to go greater than 50%, right? So let's say uh, 51%, and I have spoken. <laughs> Random. Okay, I'm Wait, wait, stay. did you not watch The Land- the Mandalorian? Yes, yes. You don't yes, remember the, yes, the character? Yes, I have spoken. You're right. You're right. right. Yeah, that guy was great. It was, so, it was somewhat relevant. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was a fail on my part, yes. I will admit. All right, good. 
So I'm going to say uh, with 33%. What? <laughs> I'm going to say Star Trek, damn it, Jim. I'm an intellectual, not an action hero. <laughs> Let me see if I understand the math here. <laughs> so you're, you are supposing that Star Trek is the most popular answer. With 33%. With only a third of the vote <laughs> between two choices. Right. <laughs> I don't know with it. I mean, (laughs) I might be right. right. You might be. You you know what, Joe? I like your optimism. You just might be right. Find out. We 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 will, sir. We will (laughs) only because we play by Prince's writing rules. (laughs) Make it so. Oh God. All right. Well, okay. Well, I have to be the bearer of bad news to one of you. <laughs> Care to take a gamble? <laughs> it might be. I am wearing a Star Wars hat right now. It's got to be true. I have to have won that just because he went under 50%. So, um, yeah. Alan, you won. It was Star Wars. I mean, surprise, surprise, you won. And it was over 50%, was it? Not? It was. <laughs> You know, that's the funny thing about math. It was that Mandalorian. <laughs> so, yeah, at, a, at about 60% of the vote, it was Star Wars. And maybe Yoda might have weighed in a little bit on it. Hey, look, let's be honest, right? I don't care if you're a man or a woman. We can all admit we want a little baby Yoda. <laughs> like, baby Yoda's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah I yeah. want one. I'm not going to lie. I do have baby a couple Yoda. baby Yodas on my shelf, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a cute little thing. I, I need one. Yeah, and you know, I mean, he has his own little force capability. Right? You know, like how cute is that? And his ears wiggle. Like you're like, you go to change his diaper, and he's like, no, go away. <laughs> he forces you away. <laughs> I think I'm actually going to go back and watch it again because that little guy made me smile every time he came on screen. Yeah, he was so cute. All right, all right. Well, um, huh? <laughs> Who would have thought that fifty percent is the winning amount? I- <laughs> You know what? Maybe uh maybe the next episode we'll just like rehash some math. <laughs> Joe, Joe's about to drop off. He's I was like, gonna do another joke, but I don't know that we need to now. I'm just saying, you know, replicators, right? Uh no money. To, uh, totally communist uh universe. I mean what, where did come we on. just go there? Star Trek. Oh okay. All right. <laughs> no more traffic. All right. Oh, so uh God. Yeah, so much for humor. Uh, well, let's let's do another joke, anyways. How about that? Oh, my head hurts. So, uh, from Slack, R. Hmm, how do you pronounce this one? R. Bleeder. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, gave me a gave me a this one. This is my joke for life. Oh, that's how that's how I'm. That's your biggest hint already. So we've got the best chapter he's ever read, right. plus the joke for life all in one episode. All right, you ready? You ready for this? I'm ready. What does a developer do before starting their car? Make? I don't know. I have no Run. clue. Get in it. <laughs> oh my gosh. I gave you such a big hint. Such okay. such a I hint. I just know that you liked it. I should have known. Yeah, get in it. Wow. That's really good. Okay. <laughs> yep. So uh all right, for so for today's survey, you know, we ask the hard hitting questions 
that other shows just don't even think to to ask. And so today's survey is which fast food restaurant makes the best fries? Because <laughs> the people want to know. That's right. All right. So your choices are Arby's, Burger King, Checkers, Chick-fil-A, Hardee's, In-N-Out, Jack in the Box, McDonald's, Popeye's, Steak and Shake, or Wendy's? And I'll give you a hint. Some of you are going to be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And you you want to know what's great about this particular survey is I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of passion in the answers behind these, right? Yeah. You're going to have to defend your answer in the comments and that will enter you in for a chance to win the book. Oh man. I would actually love to see the dissertation as to why people chose one over the other instead of just choosing like totally leave a comment. Like, yeah, it's gotta be these and this is why. And if you don't have palm frites in your uh, neck of the woods, then write in and let us know what you like instead. Oh, that's man, that makes me remember. So, why, why, why do we call them French fries here, but they're called chips overseas? What, what is that? A chip is a thin sliced fried thing. Why, why are those called chips? Like, why is fish and chips not fish and fries? It hurts my brain. I don't know, but biscuits and cookies too, man. I, you know, I don't know. Wait. <laughs> well, you know, I did forget uh, one last joke before we leave this section because, um, as it relates specifically to our our survey uh, the, that we already gave the answers to, um, Mike. Mike R.G. from Slack. I don't. You might have heard his name like once or three billion times per episode. Yeah, per episode. Uh, he pointed me to a tweet from uh, Parker Higgins that really makes a lot of sense and really gives you something to think about, uh, especially as it relates to our survey and just our, this this uh, architectural type conversations that we're having. So Parker says, I used to wonder why the interfaces on Star Trek are so clunky, given that it's centuries in the future. But I guess that's just Enterprise software for you. (laughs) That's good. This episode is sponsored by educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new frameworks, languages, patterns, practices, but there's so many resources out there. Where should you go? Meet educative.io. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your local environment. The courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but more importantly engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim the course back and forth just like a book. No need to scrub through hours of video just to get to the parts you care about. The incredible thing about Educative.io is that all of their courses have free trials, a 30-day return policy, so there's no risk to you. You can try any course you want and see what you think of it, and you're going to love it. And here's the great thing. They recently introduced subscriptions, so now uh, you can go – our listeners can go to educative.io slash codingblocks, and you can get a 10% off discount on any uh, course or subscription. Again, that URL is educative.io slash codingblocks. 
And, you know, I got to bring up my favorite course, Grokking the System Design Interview, uh, in which uh, they go over a bunch of um, common architectures uh, for um, – no, I shouldn't say common. They go over architectures for um, prominent platforms like, say, YouTube or Twitter or, or um, Uber and uh, break down how those systems are designed. And it will show you just how important it is to know the read-write ratio and volume – when you're uh, trying to think about how to design a system or if you're trying to interview, uh, doing a system design interview. So I definitely re- recommend checking that out. And remember, they've got that 30-day return policy. So if it's not for you, then that's okay. You can you can afford to try it out uh, with no risk. Hey, and with 10% off, you can't go wrong. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, make sure to start learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's E-D-U-C-A-T ive.io slash coding blocks and you can get that 10% off any course or an additional 10% off of a subscription. So let's jump back into the conversation with hash indexes. So, I mean, this is kind of a a continuation of the, the hash map conversation that we were talking about before the, before the break, uh, where like we, how we might store the, um, the key in a hash table and be able to then have the luxury of doing an O of one lookup. And then that pointing us to a, a offset in the main data file that we can then go and retrieve Alan's contact information. That's right. In a nutshell. And what's interesting is they say that they did this. I've never even, I've heard of Ryok or Ryok. I don't, I don't even know how you say it, but I've heard of it before. But they said that this is what's done for Bitcask, which is the default storage engine for React. The interesting thing, though, is they store this entire set in memory. So super fast, but you got to have enough RAM, right? Yeah, I wonder what kind of uh, applications people are doing with, with React. I haven't really looked at, into it too much. Yeah. And one, one thing I kind of uh, learned recently is that how often uh, sometimes um, uh, databases are kind of embedded into different applications. Like uh, Kafka embeds um, RocksDB in their Kafka Streams applications. And that's kind of like the most prominent example that I think of. Uh, Jaeger uh, is an application I've been using for some tracing Wait. that lets you use. Oh, sorry. Oh, uh, just uh, different kind of databases underneath, uh, including Elasticsearch can kind of power its stuff. And uh, there was one other example I wanted to give. Well, what were you going to say about Jaeger lets you use? Uh, Elasticsearch. As oh. it's like, ultimately, it's like storage engine for uh, displaying in. Oh, the other one, uh, Grafana. Uh, you can have, have uh, different storage engines that are kind of like underneath it. And so what I think of as Grafana is a bunch of pretty graphs. But underneath, you can do like Prometheus or Influx or maybe there's other choices there. But it's interesting to see that you um, that these other applications kind of are built around databases but don't necessarily expose that database to you. And, uh, you know, that's there's nothing new about that. I just like I forget sometimes that so much of what I get out of vacation or that I like out of applications that I use is uh, often kind of granted to them by the magical powers given by their kind of embedded database. But how does SQLite not come to mind for you? I've never used SQLite. <coughs> oh, I've, yeah, I definitely have. I mean, when you talk about it like something that's like embedded everywhere. Yeah, it, it was yeah. like the de facto a lot of times for, for mobile applications, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, even PWA, all the things. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I guess I did a little bit when I was messing with Unity. Uh, it was easy to embed it in there, and that that's a great use case. So, like, you want a relational database inside a game, like SQLite, great choice. 
Yep. Yeah, I mean, clearly, uh, the author, um, Martin Kleppman, he has had a lot of experience in a lot of different uh, database technologies because some of these I had never heard of. Like the React, I was like, I, I, I it sounded more like a car. <laughs> you know, the funny part is it is actually pronounced React. I, I had to go look it up. So Joe said it properly first. But yeah, um, the interesting thing about this one is they say that all the keys stay in memory, but you're still appending to that file constantly. So every time you write to that file, all you're doing is just going back with that O of one lookup to get back to that key, update the the new pointer, and you're going in. So it's hyper efficient, right? So that's Bitcask and React. Yeah. Now you have to think though, like, okay, if you're just always going to run right to this file, like how how what next? Like you're eventually going to run out of disk space, right? Like that can't be your strategy for life, right? Or can it? I mean, you, that's what I love about this particular chapter, by the way, is it just keeps building on. It's yeah. like, okay, well, here's the, ne- the here's the very first problem you're going to run into, right? So, so the answer is obviously no, no, you can't, you can't do that. So you have to come in to some other solution. So that's where uh, file segmenting and compaction come into play. So. By that, what I mean is we gave this example where uh, you know we were using a, a bash function set and get to write contact information to a flat file, and we made some mistakes, and we had to update Alan's information 50 times, all right? So it's not until you know that 50th one is the one that is really the one that matters. So the compaction, what that would do is we would eliminate all those other ones, and we would just store the one entry for Alan. But we're in this homebrew, homegrown version into a new file is the important yeah. part, right? So again, we're still in a pinned only mode. The big difference is when you go through the compaction, you're reading through the old stuff and you're basically trying to merge that into a new file that is also going to be a pinned only and will eventually become the new log file that everything else is writing to. You can imagine like if you're kind of um, designing a new system like this and you start going down this path and you realize that you, you're potentially going to run out of uh, disk space, you start thinking about how you might do this underneath is like I would probably pick a size like four gigs and I would just allocate that size on disk and then I would start at the top and start appending. And as I started to get close to that four gig limit, then I would go and allocate a new file. And then as soon as I hit that limit, I've already got that next four gigs allocated and open and and I can run over there and do that. And at that point, I can drop my pointer to the file that I had open and I can exit it. And then another process can come along and take a look at older files at some point, whenever it chooses, and go through and kind of clean things up, compact. And uh, that's really powerful. And it's, it reminds me a little bit of garbage collection, mm-hmm. uh, except that it can, it can cleanly segment these things off by kind of saying, like, we're not garbage collecting the stuff that's actively being written to right now because we've made this rule where we only ever write to the end. You know, I mean, that that's one of the subtleties of this book, of this, of this chapter that I loved about it, is that even in um, the scenario that, that Joe was just describing where you might pre-allocate this four gig file, <clears throat> in this chapter, he specifically discusses like even the performance gain that you would get from sequential writes and reads by by writing all of that in one contiguous block on a spinning hard drive, right? And like what benefit you might get from that. The just little things like that that, you know, if you weren't thinking about it, 
you know, and you could easily take for granted, right? But he calls it out. Yep. This chapter is extremely thorough. Yeah, he goes deep. I mean, it's a step-by-step on how you would actually do this from scratch for a very basic but still functional database, right? And one of the things that they point out in this whole compaction type thing, right, to to what Joe was saying is typically these things happen in a background thread, right? So think about it, right? You have something that's constantly writing to your live log file. And then, you know, it's approaching the time where it's it's filling up and it needs to create this new segmentation, this new file. It's going to do that on a background thread. And also in the background, it's going to try and go through and find all the latest, newest records for any particular key, write them to it. And as soon as that's done, it's basically going to do exactly what Joe said. It's going to deallocate, deallocate the pointer to that old file, point it over to that new one where you've got that compacted data in it and start writing to that. And then that garbage collection, that file garbage collection can take place and you can delete those old files if you want. Right. Because what we were talking about is once you eventually run out of space, not if you keep, you know, basically trimming the old stuff as you go along. So yeah, already um, you can kind of envision like where a where the system part of RDBMS comes into play because you can already imagine like okay I need a whole other separate process maybe to like manage some of this compaction and segments and whatnot and moving the pointers around like you know versus another process that's just like okay you're going to give me data I'm going to take it in I'm just going to write it to the transaction log and I'm not going to even think about it beyond that I'm just Read, write, read, you know, read it from you and write it to the file. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to mention too, uh, the two systems I work with um, a lot day to day are Kafka and Elasticsearch. And both of them have this concept that directly maps uh, segments and compaction. And both of them work exactly the same way. And uh, after kind of reading this chapter and being able to kind of correlate the things that I've learned about like Elastic, one thing that I've noticed is that like if Elastic, if you fill up your disk space, it's a problem because it's not easy to clean up old records. When you try to compact, it needs to allocate new space so it can go through its segments and write to a new file before it can delete those old sections. So what that means is if you've got a hundred percent disk utilization filled up, it's really hard to make more room and delete stuff. So you can't just go in and say, okay, fine, delete the top thousand or delete the oldest thousands records. Cause it's like, actually I can't, I can't make any room to delete anything truly off disk because there's no room for me to write it. And so you can get into a, a kind of a bad problem there where you basically have to move stuff off disk in order to clean up some room and move that stuff back on. Uh, so it can be a big problem in Kafka too. Actually, um, one thing I ran into there, I, I never really realized until reading this chapter is that they've got retention policies on their topics and you can say like age data out after, uh, you know, a couple of days or I can age data out, uh, or I shouldn't say age. I, I should say, you know, may, maybe uh, only keep 50 megabytes of data around for retention this topic. policies. And yeah, so I kind of thought like, okay, cool. So as soon as a new record gets written, maybe it looks at the oldest record and kicks it out. No, that's not how it works. It basically happens when those segments roll over. So whenever it kind of hits that limit on disk, that's when things get cleaned up or that's when things get compacted. And that can have a big impact if you're writing a program and your program doesn't ever expect to get older data because you've got a retention policy set on. But that data doesn't actually get cleared out of that segment until compaction occurs, which in Kafka's case doesn't actually occur until a segment essentially rolls, which is that process where you start writing to a new one. So if you've got a really low volume topic, even though you've got a retention policy set to say like three days, if it's so, it's, it's such low volume that it doesn't ever roll over the segment size, 
you could have a year's worth of data in there. Yep. So if you're doing things for like government work or whatever, where you're like, you can't keep data longer than X days, or if you've got like a GDPR incident and you need to wipe someone's data and you think that you're clear because your retention policy is only three days, it may not actually be the case because of how these things work underneath. And so it can really chip you up if you don't understand that those are how things work. Yeah. And, and now during this chapter, I can go look at those systems and like, kind of understand them more deeply and I'm glad that they use the same terms for these things. Yeah, it, it is really interesting too because what you're talking about even in the Kafka world is that retention policy of size competes with the time retention policy, right? So what you're saying is if you you might think okay, well I'll be smart about this and I'll just make it to where you know, these things uh, roll over segments every minute or something, right? Because, hey, if I want to make sure that these records age out really fast, then I can do that. But the problem is now you're creating these new files constantly, right? So you have the contention of creating the new segmentation file while you're closing out the other ones and you're having to write to disk at the same time. So it's it's really a balancing act, right? Like you're going to have to set the proper size to say, hey, I think I'll get this much data so that it'll It'll trigger this new segmentation file and I need it to work within this amount of time so that they're not competing with each other and you're constantly writing new segmentation files. Um, because in the Kafka world, probably very similar based off these very simple principles we're talking about here is each segmentation has basically a starting offset and an ending offset so that when you go to seek to records sort of ish in the Kafka world, it kind of knows where to go find them. So all of these principles we're talking about here in this very simple implementation of a database are used in a lot of storage systems that are now adopted by massive companies. Um, so one, one of the things here that I don't know if we covered is while that background thread's running, where it's basically trying to create a new segmentation thing, they also point out in, in this implementation, you're still going to be writing your, your new records to that other file and your loss to the, to, to the log, append only log, to the append only log. And you're also still reading your offsets from that append only log while this other segmentation file or a segmentation log is being created because you don't want to contend with that thing while it's creating it. Only when that thing's done, do you switch over? And then they say after it's done, after you've created that segment, that new segment file, then the old ones can be deleted. And then again, that of course is going to boil down to if you have a retention policy or something, right? Like maybe you just kill them as soon as they're done. You know, I've seen guidance from Elasticsearch that says not to uh, run compaction or what they call it force merge in their case to basically clean up those sector uh, sections, uh, segments. Uh, they say not to do that to an index that's actually being written to. And now when I think about it, it's like, okay, that makes sense because we're writing to stuff while we're trying to clean it up. But I don't know what happens in that case. Like, does it, does it mean that it doesn't clean up the active segment? Like, cause that makes sense to me. Or does it like try to clean it up and make things get a little weird? Or do you lose your rights? Does it kill yeah. those? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it, I don't think it, I don't think it loses, but I don't know. We've got a science experiment to try out. Right. But uh, you know, what's funny is with these systems, like benchmarking is really important with them, not only just because your data is different, but because there's so many different factors to play. Like say, um, you know, if you do set those, uh, the segment size really low, then you could slow things down. But depending on your use case, maybe that's, you know, important and worth the trade off. So you can make a little tiny setting change and drastically change the performance of your system as a whole. 
And so it's, it's really important to be able to kind of test that stuff before you roll, out, roll the changes out. And that's how, you know, small config changes can bring down, you know, large data centers on Christmas Eve or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's always the best time to bring down your database too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <clears throat> Lizard squad. <laughs> so, uh, so Lizard squad. That took me a minute. Yeah. That was a different incident there, but yeah, it just reminded me. Yeah. So, uh, some key factors making things work well. Uh, file format. Uh, mentioned here that CSV is not a great format for logs. Uh, it's common separated values. Um, typically, you want to use something like a binary format that encodes the length of the string in bytes with the actual string appended afterwards. Yeah. So, someone would say why? Yeah. So, they basically said that CSV, again, because the format's not good for it, by getting the length of it, you can basically store the offset to the to the end of that thing, right? So I can jump to the next line without <clears throat> scanning through all these characters right. or like regexing for a new line character or whatever. So and, it's kind of like the, re- the thing we talked about at the beginning where like a file system, depending on your file system, might contain the start and the length of the file. So if you need to hop to the end, it's got a really easy way to do that. Same thing here. So if you're trying to seek through these things as quickly as possible, like it wants to be able to go line by line the fastest way to get to the next line is to know exactly where that next line begins. So you can just do a simple add in order to hop to the next line. Yep. When you think about it, if you've got like a, you know, 300 gig file and you've got a billion lines to go through, that's a lot of hops. It's a lot of math to, just to get to, you know, that last item there or somewhere near the bottom. Yeah. It's important to call out too, though. The reason why we're even talking about CSVs, cause I, we didn't make this call out before, but technically that was the format that he was storing everything. And he, it was like a key comma and then a string value. Yep, that he had. So that's why CV came, the yeah. CSV came up. Yeah, good point. Didn't even think okay, of bringing yeah. that up. And then uh, deleting records is, requires some special attention because you have to create a, sort of a tombstone to record the file or um, you know, when you do the merge process. And that's come, so something I, I hinted at with Elastic where um, you know it, it does ingest things in a log-type format where it keeps appending, 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 appending. And if you delete an item in an index – and then it doesn't go and remove that because we, as we said, like, uh, you know, when we're dealing with logging systems that have to be really fast for ingestion, we typically only write to the end. And so in Elastic's case, so what it does is it stores the fact that you deleted this document somewhere else. And when you query and it does its filtering and does its magic, whatever, it needs to take that into account and say, Oh, this one's been deleted and exclude it from the results, which is overhead. But, um, we'll, we'll probably get to that later and talk about how they uh, could do that quickly. But the gist is to know that when you delete a document and something that's using this kind of mechanism underneath the hood, it doesn't automatically free up disk space. And so if you run that space on Elastic and you say, delete these 100,000 records, it might go and mark them as tombstoned. You know, it might set the first bit to zero or whatever and say, hey, this is deleted, but it doesn't free that disk space up. So you still can't take in new records, even though you it feels like should have been a delete uh, had successfully operated, executed. Yeah, you know, I like to think that uh, we live in a world now where emojis are such a big thing that instead of writing a zero, it could just write a skull and crossbones. <laughs> yep, literally puts in a – uh, and that's something actually with, with Kafka too. Um, Since uh, a lot of the systems that we talk about are um, a lot of modern kind of queuing systems or topics deal with immutable messages. They really want you to keep things alive for like event sourcing or so you can recreate the, the state of your document at any time. Deleting is really tough, and the way you do this is with the tombstones, like we mentioned. But you have to be careful with you know your clients that you 
uh, you know, if you're doing something kind of na- naively and maybe starting from the beginning of time and building up some sort of system or map or picture, you've also got to be able to uh, handle things like tombstoning and removing records as they come along too. And so your clients have to be a little bit smarter about things. It, and it's it, kind of funny that you can like do all these operations on something that ends up getting deleted a few minutes later. Yeah, it is. Um, it, one of the cool parts about the Kafka world, at least if you're talking about like Kafka streams, they actually use the same term there as well. So when you're trying to delete something from a streaming process, you tombstone it. So you basically send it a key with a null value, right? And it will mark it as ready to delete. So yeah, and it seems kind of goofy at first, but it makes sense to me now. But like when you think about like event sourcing and like replaying events, like you kind of think like you might be tempted <laughs> to say, why don't I just delete the records? It seems goofy that I'm going to do all this math on things that I'll end up late, you know, later, maybe I delete 90% of them. But these topics or these systems don't know what you're doing with the data. It right. doesn't know if you're making decisions based on the current state of that system. So in order to be able to replay things, it needs to replay everything, even if it ends up getting discarded at the end. And this is like in a, in a database, this would be what's known as a logical delete instead of physical delete, where you basically just mark a flag on a record and say, Hey, it's deleted. You know, ignore me when you're trying to show anything that's still alive. You might also call it a soft delete. A soft delete. You might hear that term. Yep. Oh yeah. I should mention too that, you know, we've been focusing a lot on logs this episode. We are still talking about relational databases right now because this is a fundamental piece of how uh, relational databases like SQL Server, or Oracle, or Postgres. This is how uh, this is a big part of how they work underneath. And so we're actually building up to um, their specific data structures that are built on this core um, on, on these core kind of tenants of logging. I want to correct that. Okay. I would not say that we. This is a core. This these are core concepts to databases, but we're not necessarily talking about a relational database we haven't talked about relating anything to anything we're just talking about how to store some data yeah i'm just just so the concepts that we're talking about could apply to a document database they could apply to olap like we don't care yet yeah yeah good point i did not phrase it well what i meant to say is like this is an important facet that plays a big role in relational databases as well as all these other systems like we mentioned kafka and Elasticsearch too so it's not just relational databases but that we're getting there is what i'm trying to say i would agree with that yeah, so we kind of already hit on this one, but like, you know, crash recovery, right? Like, it's not a matter of if your server is going to crash. It's a matter of when. And, you know, you mentioned these, uh, like, pre-allocating a 4-gig file, right? Like, so if that's the size of your segment file, like, depending on the size of those segment files, it could take a minute <laughs> to, to uh, you know, for the server to spin back up, depending on how it's writing the, these files to disk and... Uh, you know, what is it that's being written and in what order is it being written? Right. Yeah. So this was the whole talking about, right? Like if you didn't have this in memory hash and now you have to rebuild this in memory hash, you're going to have to scan that four gig file to rebuild that in memory. That can take some time. And they said that Bitcask, what they do is on occasion. So they're writing their log constantly, Right. But at the same time, it will snapshot its in-memory hash and write that to disk. So if it did crash for some reason when the thing comes back up, it can go load up that snapshot file, load that straight into memory without having to scan the 4-gig file, and then that way you have your pointers right back to that data. And, and, and just to put some, some terminology around that, that, um, that snapshot file that you're referring to at that point would, te- would in fact be the index it is. that is being kept in memory, but – 
it occasionally does snapshot that index out to a file, but it can reread that occasionally. Yep. You know, in the case of a, a server crash. Which, depending on the size of the file, could save minutes, right? It could save yeah. maybe even more than that. Well, that's why I call it like the four gig segment file. You know, since uh, Joe had mentioned four gig as the, you know, what the size of the file you might preallocate, right? Like, uh, depending on how large those files are, you know, it, it could definitely have an impact on, uh, you know, I mean, it's part of the trade off that you're going to make, right? Because either you take the overhead of writing a bunch of little files, mm-hmm. or you're going to like, pre-allocate one large file so that you can have one large sequential file to read and write to. But then either way, yeah, either way, if it's four gigs of data in a hundred files or four gigs of data in one file, you're still going to take a hit on trying to go scan through all that data. Well, it depends on what that hunt those Those hundred files represent though. Well, let's say it's the same format, right? Yeah. You're just going through it. Um, but one of the other things that they talk about here is another thing you need to be concerned about in this particular model that we've been building up or this, this underlying storage is what happens with incomplete record writes. You know, this thing crashes in the middle of trying to write something. Well, going back to this bitcast thing that we all know and love now, it, it, uh, you know, it actually writes checksums. So that when you go look at the file, it can look at the checksum and say, hey, is this thing done? Is it complete? Is everything kosher? If it's not, then it can skip the bad sectors and you kind of pick up, you know, where the good stuff left off. Uh, finally, um wanted to mention concurrency control unless you got something outlaw. Well, I was just going to say, like, you know, even if you were to think back to Bit, you know, because you're talking about BitCast, but none of us really have a lot of experience with that. But if you were to think back to, like, any other traditional kind of database, like a SQL server, you know, you could think about like how, um, in the, the asset compliance that you mentioned earlier, right. Where that thing isn't truly written, considered written until like all the indexes have been updated additionally. Right. But if it did write to the, to the log and, you know, maybe two out of five indexes got written and then it crashed, right. You could see, you can start to imagine now, like, Oh, here's where some of the spin up time can come from on a restart because as it rereads that log of, okay, what were the last things that were done? Did those things finish? Let me go finish those things. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So now you can kind of get an idea as to like, how does it, how does it recover from that crash and still adhere to acid? Yeah. There's like checkpoints all over the place. Yeah. Right. So. It is interesting. And Jay-Z, you want to pick back up on the concurrency? Yep. Just want to mention, so for concurrency, we kind of hit on this before, but it's common for there only to be one writer that has the uh, you know the open file pointer and that is responsible for streaming that data as quickly as possible to disk. But it's also common to have multiple readers. And we can do that, well, again, because we know that the, the data written, once it's written, as long as we're doing a, a proper log, is immutable. So it's safe for multiple readers to be in there in time. So that's something we can parallelize out and, uh, you know, do a couple different interesting things with that without worrying about slowing down the writing at all. So no locking. Yep. This is, this is where the, uh, the questions that everybody's had bouncing around in their heads, like why, why are you just writing only? Right. Like, so why not? Yeah, I mean, it seems terrible. Like you have to worry about writing this space. If you've got um, data that's update heavy, which is a kind of write, but it's a specialized kind of write, then this seems, you know, like a terrible idea. And so, you know, we kind of touched on some of these things before and it can seem really inefficient at first, 
But like we mentioned, if you stick something into the middle of the file, not only do you have to seek to it and search for it and find it, but then depending on if that data is larger or small, you potentially have to bump all the data, you know, one way or the other, which is a pain. If you imagine like even deleting the first line of a file means you have to shift everything up, uh, you know, to read. So uh, now that I say that, I don't know if there's maybe optimization for that <laughs> in the file system, whatever. But as far as I know, you have to, to shift everything in place. Well, uh, but I mean, if we're keeping true to the spirit of this chapter, though, you're, you're managing this file yourself. Right, right. So, so if you're going to delete the first entry from the file, then you're responsible for shifting everything up. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I just got hung up thinking about if there was some way maybe I could. Well, because the uh, point is to try to think about like, you know, something has to do this shuffling around, right? Mm-hmm. And like, where where are some, um, you know, the the weak spots, the strengths, the advantages of different different ways of even write, reading or writing or storing this stuff on disk. Yep, and we, we mentioned too how um, this is particularly efficient on uh, hard drives, spinning hard drives. But one thing that the book mentioned they didn't really go into is that uh, sequential operations are also more efficient on solid state drives. Uh, I hadn't heard this before and I haven't looked deeply into it, but I was curious if uh, anyone looked it up or what, why up. that was. I've never looked into it, but I have also seen that, at least on performance charts and stuff, where, where they're comparing multiple drives, like your sequential versus your random reads and all that kind of stuff. Like, there's massive differences in them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's generally like if you really want to gauge the performance of any drive, be it a solid state or a spinning disk, it's the randoms that are going to be like the true measure of like how fast it is, right? Because that's what your OS is doing is just throwing stuff all over the place. Yeah, because the because the sequentials are usually going to be like that. That's what they're all optimized for. Right, right, right. The sequential is if you're writing a massive chunk of a file at once, right? Like you have a movie that you're bringing over and it's thirty yeah. gigs. That's that's your sequential write and your read. But that's not most well, of hope. what's <laughs> you hope. But that's not what is most of your operating system, right? It's usually files scattered all over the place, which is why your performance numbers are based off that. Yeah, when you get when you get a five hundred and fifty megabyte per second random, then that's good. You're, yeah, you're flying. Well, actually, that's no, like, that's not even good. By nowadays, nowadays. yeah, I'm sorry. I, there should, I should have added a zero to that. That was a set. That yeah. was a set of six. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. 2007 called. They want their hard drive back. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, so I looked up why SSDs, why it matters at all for a sequential. And what they kind of say is basically if you're doing random uh, access and you're writing to random spots on disk, then they can basically leave little holes. So we're talking about kind of fragmentation essentially. And uh, if you're writing a lot of data, those holes eventually need to be cleaned up. And so uh, you're kind of forcing more, uh, more kind of garbage collection or defragmentation type operations uh, because that, you know, you're going to be filling up space in an inefficient way compared to a sequential write, which doesn't leave any of those holes and is able to just keep streaming that data out. But that's the same for both spinning and SSDs. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious. Like I knew, so I knew, I understood like, you know, you've got that physical pointer, you know, that physical like writer head on the the spinning disk. And so that made sense to me as to why sequential was really important there. But SSD is always kind of, it's like thought of them as basically being like similar to RAM. And so I was like, why does it matter if it's sequential or not? But it it basically has to deal with, uh, it has to do with how that, um, how things get junked up. Okay. Essentially. So similar. I just type imagine, thing. huh? Cause I, I just assumed that it would be like 
even on that disc, there's still a controller. There is. And like any other process, it's got, you know, a certain number of threads that it can do stuff. It has to know where to go get it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, if it can just be like, oh, hey, uh, start from this offset and read, you know, 10 gig, that's going to be a lot faster operation than, okay, read from this offset and read five meg. Now go to this offset and read two meg. Now go to this offset and read a gig. Now go to this offset. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. That's, that was just my assumption. Yep. Yeah, and well, it turns out that's part of it too. So I just round someone else that said, uh, you know, even on smaller writes, like not like excluding this kind of filling up and having to do that uh, that cleanup, uh, it's not a true zero. Uh, it's not a, a true zero cost operation in order to kind of hop around because when things aren't stored uh, linearly, you do have to go back and do that those calculations in order to kind of move around and, and read and write to different areas. So exactly what you said. Cool. It's close to zero. It's much faster, but it's not. It's not zero. Oh, SSDs are such a beautiful thing. True that. Uh, so concurrency and crash re- recovery. We mentioned how uh, logging systems deal with these, but it's much simpler. Uh, when you when we get into uh, like relation databases more, we're going to talk about um, the the things that they have to do to go you know pretty far out of their way in order to make those things work. To keep this back compliant. in context, though, we're talking about it's much simpler if you're in a pinned only mode and not updating updating yes, portions yes. of the file. Right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so so I only wanted to bring that out because we we floated away a second. So we're talking about why not update in the middle of the files, right? Like why not go right. update the value for some key? And this is one of the reasons because the concurrency and the crash recovery are much easier if you're always doing a pend only. Yep. And uh, merging all segments is convenient and an intrusive way to avoid fragmentation. So it gives us a nice convenient pattern for falling there. It's low effort. It's hard to mess up and it just kind of works out really well in practice. And, and so this fragmentation, I think it's, it's important to understand what he was just talking about with the SSDs and the hard drives and all that. Imagine, you know, a simple example because we we're using my name or let's use Joe this time. So let's say that he first went in there as Joseph Zach, right? And then at some point they come back and they're like, no, 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 we want that as Joe. Well, because you don't want to shift all those bits around on disk, because that's a really expensive operation, especially if there's 10 gigs of data after him, probably what you're going to do is you're going to write JOE there and you're going to null out that next bit in there and just leave four bytes open, right? And so that's where you start running fragmentation. And that's why they're saying if you do this append-only thing, then you don't have this fragmentation. You don't have all these empty blocks all over the place because you're always putting it right at the very end. So you don't, this update causes fragmentation and that's why they lean towards this append only mode. And if you also think about it like this, um, if you were creating this database server, this database system, and this system was only ever going to be used for, this database, you can kind of already get an idea where like if it's always pre-allocating uh, these files of a certain size, right? And it's always going to be like, uh, you know, from the beginning of this computer's, this server's life, it's always going to be pre-allocating them in a certain size, sequential writes and reads. And then, oh, I got to, I got to get a new file. So I'm going to go and create a pre-allocate another one. And then eventually I can age off this other one. You could see like how, the disk itself is always going to lend itself to be in a non-fragmented, mm-hmm. you know, ho- hopefully, 
more often than not, the disc itself will remain. Yeah, you're just packing them in there. At least you hope. Yeah, yeah I hope. mean that that would be the the hope for sure. But yeah, you're just constantly churning over the same thing, right? Like you're filling it up. It's almost like filling a glass of water, pouring it out, filling it back up. Right? I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like being optimistic here, though, and hoping that you're going to delete the same amount of records that you're inserting. So, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not true then. But at least from like, but, but think about it though, from the point of view of like, um, this is also why systems will allow you to keep the data files in one place, temp files in another, and the log in another. Right, so you can allocate different disks for these things for these purposes. Mm-hmm. Yep, there's all kinds of optimizations. We're doing the simple database right now. Yeah, <laughs> simple. Yeah. All right, so we have some downsides here, and this is going back to what we were originally talking about. So the first one is the hash table must fit in memory. Right. Uh, if you don't have enough RAM, it, this was the whole bit cask, right? Like our our hash to look up thing. Um, then you might, if, if you don't have enough memory, then you're probably gonna have to spill this over to the disc, which isn't nearly as efficient, right? Because now you can't just go straight to the spot in, in Ram where that hash was to point to the location. And now you're actually having to go, okay, well, it's not in Ram. Let me go find it on disc and then go look it up. Right. So it's an additional couple hops. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, another downside here, we haven't even, talked about this one yet but range queries are going to be inefficient if you have to look up each individual key and so what i mean by that is like if you had to do a query where you're like hey um give me all of the contacts for people whose names are from a to d right well depending on how that's sorted, right? You could see like how that log going through that log is going to be inefficient. If you had to go through that and look for at each individual entry to find the matches there, you know, uh, match that, that range query. Yeah. Because the key is no longer actually the key, right? Like it's not like it's stored as, you know, Alan, Joe and Mike it's ABC one, two, three, you know, DEF two, four, five, whatever, because it's hashing that key for the fast lookup. So yeah, these range queries are going to be super expensive because they're probably going to be scans, scans through your hash table more than likely, which is an interesting point. Like when, when you see something doing like a table scan and something like SQL server, or you see something doing an index scan, neither are good. But typically your index scan will probably still be faster than your table scan because you're scanning a smaller chunk of data to get to it a lot of times. So it's it's not efficient, but it's still more efficient than having to go through the entire data set in a lot of situations. Yeah, I mean, another way that you could think about that, um, this is definitely getting a little bit ahead, but but to your point, the the data file might contain every column. So if you had, you know, a hundred, if it was a really wide table, you have a hundred columns in it versus the index, you know, even in your composite key example, like in our phone book example, we, we gave three columns. Mm -hmm. So it's already a much smaller size, size wise. It's already a much smaller, you know, the width of this thing is, is already smaller. So you can already see like how it would be, uh, you know, the size would be greatly impacted because now you're only talking about an index. And then, you know, there might be there, uh, 
additional operations that could compact that even further that we haven't gotten to yet. Yep. So. So stay tuned. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a fast and enjoyable project management platform that breaks down silos and brings team together to ship value, not just features. So let's face it. Slow, confusing UX is so last decade. Clubhouse is lightning fast, built for today's software teams with only the features and the best practices you need to succeed and nothing else. And here are a few highlights about Clubhouse. They've got flexible workflows, so you can easily customize workflow states for teams or projects of any size. We've got advanced filtering, so you can quickly filter by project or by team to see how everything is progressing. And you can do sprint planning, so you can set your weekly priorities with iterations and let Clubhouse run the schedule. And Clubhouse also integrates with the tools that you love. They tie into existing tools, services, and workflows, um, the things like you can get notifications or create a story in Slack, update the status of a story with a pull request, or preview designs from Figma links, or even build your own integration with their API and a lot of other things. And Clubhouse is an enjoyable collaboration tool. Easy drag-and-drop UI, dark mode, emoji reactions, and even more. When you're doing your best work and your team is clicking, life is good. Clubhouse has recently made all core features completely free for teams up to 10 users, and they're offering Coding Blocks listeners two additional free months on any paid plan with unlimited users and access to premium features. So give it a try. You can go to clubhouse.io slash codingblocks. That's clubhouse.io slash codingblocks to try it today. All right. So uh, as far as resources are like, uh, of course, the book, Designing Data Intensive Applications, uh, is fantastic. Make sure to leave that comment if you want a chance to win that. And uh, yeah, now it's on to uh, Alan's favorite point of the show. Or, is or it my, not I quite. Forget. How about this? How about this? Because uh, I, I had this question that was written into us, and it, it, may, it came to mind because um, you mentioned – if you were going after, I think you said if you were to go after cloud certifications, I think is how you worded it, right? Oh, I did get, I got one of those. Yeah. So the question was that was that we received was are certification certifications worth it? So Joe, and so I was kind of curious since you just recently got your certification, maybe you would have an opinion on such a question. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, so I recently got the uh, GCP, the Google Cloud uh, Platform uh, ACE uh, certification, certification, which is their associate cloud engineer. And um, for that's the first certification I've ever went and gone after and uh, gotten. And uh, I've kind of avoided it for years because I never really kind of saw the point. And I had a couple of bad experiences with tests that didn't really, I feel like, actually accurately judge like how well i knew a subject like i took like a cold fusion test once and it was all about cf forms and like nobody used those at the time it was a terrible way of doing things and i was really upset about the test and i was angry i was like screw this and uh but i I, you know i've kind of changed my mind recently a little bit about some certifications because uh kind of two things two reasons one is that when you study for a certification particularly for something that you're kind of newer at it really highlights the things that you uh, maybe overlooking. So if it's, you know, something you've been doing for 10 years, like, and you're, you know, you're already doing that job, then studying for the certification isn't, you know, really going to highlight areas that you're weak on unless you're particularly wanting to bone up on that language just to do it. But when you're first getting into something, 
it's really easy to not understand or not understand that you're missing big areas or that you have big kind of gaps or big misunderstandings in your knowledge. So it was a great way for me to, to learn GCP and have a goal that I was going after. So it was great for the knowledge aspect. Also, I think that some certifications are particularly valuable now. Uh, and particularly, uh, I'm talking about cloud and specifically like Kubernetes type certifications. There's just a couple in there like Elastic, Kafka, I think that are really valuable now. But those are all ones where it's like there's a lot of knowledge that you can be tested on that can be really important because there are all these like dark little kind of uh, corners that will trip you up and, you know, bite you on ankles and mess you up. And so I think by having those certifications, you kind of show that you've uh, at least done kind of a general lay of the land and that you aren't just kind of strongly focused on whatever your, you know, small kind of slice of working with that technology and like a day job does. It means that you've kind of kicked the dust off of, you know, most aspects of those platforms. And so I think that um, me and, uh, you know, some organizations are kind of coming around on valuing uh, those certifications higher. I think security is probably another great space where if you're working in security space, like those, uh, those certifications are highly valuable. Same reasons. Alan. Yeah, I, I have similar feelings and probably even a little bit further. So one of the things that we talked about in this episode was the, the Kafka retention policy and things, you know, aging out or being pushed on a different segmentation type stuff. The only reason I even know about most of that stuff is because I was actually working towards getting Kafka developer certified, right? And that's some of the stuff that you learn about as you're going through preparing for that. That's not something I, I would have assumed the same thing. Hey, I said that the retention policy seven days, seven days, that data is gone, right? That's not the case, right? So it's, it's like he said, filling in those gaps is important. I will also say it, this isn't as important to me. And I, by no means do I want people to get hung up on going and getting certifications over getting experience on things. I think that certifications help lend credibility to your knowledge and your experience and your ability to work on things. However, there's going to be people that are like, Oh, they say, go get certifications. I'm just going to focus on certifications. And, and, and unfortunately you can go take tests on things all day long and not actually understand how they work. Right. So I feel like certifications lend. If you're experienced in something, they also kind of, give you some credibility to go along with it. So if you're talking to somebody within your organization and they say, Hey, how do you think we should do this? And you say, Hey, I think that Kubernetes would be a good fit for this because X, Y, and Z. And they can look and say, Oh, this guy's actually cert- uh, Kubernetes um, certified developer or cert- Kubernetes certified admin, right? That lends some credibility so that it's not just, Hey, I've got this crazy developer over here saying that we should do this. So, so I think it's two things, right? Fill in the gaps. I think it's important. And I do think that it can help you sell your case in certain circumstances. And it could also be good for getting jobs because let's be realistic. Nowadays, your LinkedIn's, um, that social profile and being able to put certifications on there is a big deal. And I actually noticed at our job, in your personal profile, like in, in our HRE personal profile, there's a place where you can plug in certifications there, right? So hmm. um, so it can actually matter for you in multiple ways. It takes a lot of time. <laughs> it takes a lot of effort. In some cases, it takes a lot of money. Um, 
but it can be worth it. it, it it's funny. The downside to this is you guys, I know you both remember this. You remember when MCSE and MCP were like the big things mm-hmm. and there were so many exam companies that started up that it was, Hey, come over here and take our training for a thousand dollars and we'll get you MCSE certified. Right. And you had all these people getting MCSE certified that didn't know Jack about how to set up systems. And it, it kind of tainted the market back then. And I think we've gotten past that maybe a little bit. I don't know, but I don't know. So I'm always kind of torn on them. So, so, so the interesting thing is that, um, both of you, Targeted infrastructure type certifications. Nobody said a Java certification, right? Or you know any kind of application developer certification. You both you both went after infrastructure type things. So that's that's curious, and and I don't I don't uh, disagree with it. Um, it's funny that you bring up the uh, MCSE certifications because that's definitely put a bad. Uh, you know, uh, opinion of certifications in my mind where like I never went after it because exactly like what you just described. I I worked with a guy, we hired this guy. He had every certification that you could imagine from Microsoft that you might want your network and sys administrator to have. And I'm not kidding when I tell you he asked me how to find the IP properties on the server. And I'm like, really, man? Because I don't have any of the certifications that you have. You have every one that Microsoft offers. Mm-hmm. And so it was at that point, I kid you not, I was like, these things are worthless. Right. I will never waste a minute of my time or a single dollar going after one. Right. Right? Um, now, that said... You know, things have changed. Yeah. I, I, I will give you that. It's been a and, minute. And so I I will give you that I probably have a very tainted old view of of it and perspective and I should I should change that. Um because you know it is it is it does look impressive when you can look at somebody's uh you know LinkedIn profile and you see those kind of things, right? But I think that what I would say is, you know, like whether to go after them or not is like, I would definitely put the um, emphasis on the experience, like what you said, Alan, like that cannot be understated enough. And if after going through that process of gaining that experience and whatever the thing is of choice that's of interest to you, if you're at a point where you can get the inf- get the certification for it, by all means, man, totally. go for it. Yeah. Go ahead. Like, why not at that point? But, but I wouldn't start at it from the inverse. I wouldn't start with like, oh, I should probably go get the certification in this technology that I know nothing about. So I'm going to study for the certification exam without trying to gain the experience. Right. Because you can do that and you can get the certification. But when it comes time to, you know, show off that knowledge, you're going to come flat. Yeah. Right. It's true. And I mean, I'll give a good example. So I have been working towards the Kubernetes uh, developer. I think it's CKAD. Uh, maybe I think that's right. At any rate, there's, there's a Udemy course that is, you know, get your CKAD um, Kubernetes certification. You know, this, this course will teach you how to do it. 
but it's a great, I'm not using it to go get the certification. It is a fantastic course to show you all the things that Kubernetes can do. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so yes, it's a good study guide, but more or less, it's it's almost like what this podcast is for me. What I think this podcast should be to most people is how do you improve your knowledge set without having to know everything? Because it's really hard to do, right? So I, there's no way I'm going to read through every single doc on the Kubernetes.io website and go through everything. But if I can go through this course and this guy's like, hey, this is a config map and this is what it's used for. Um, you know, this is a, a security vault and this is what it's used for. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Right now, when I go do something, I'm not going to do it harebrained because I'm going to have an idea that, you know what? I heard about this. I need to go look at it. So it, to me, it's, it's like an accompaniment, right? Like it, it helps push you forward. It helps build your knowledge. But if you feel like you're close to it, do it. Right. Hey, look, I'm not going to lie. If you go get your cloud certification in AWS, if you, if you become a cloud certified architect in AWS, probably going to have a decent paycheck. If you get your cloud certification in Azure as an architect, you're probably going to have a good paycheck. Right. Like, so these things can help you, but they should be part of your experience as you go, not the only thing. Because if you get in there, with a cloud architect certification and you can't answer simple questions. Yeah. You're messing it up for yourself for a long time. And you're also messing it up for everybody else that comes after you. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where it's so tough. So like to the question about like which ones, I don't have any specific recommendations. I would just say like, if it's already something that you are in and you feel like you've mastered it, then, you know, and there's a certification available for it, go for it. By the way, I am cold fusion certified. Nice, yeah. very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Was it for uh, CF7? That's what I saw. I took a practice exam, and it was like CF form out the wazoo, and I had a fit. No, this was pre-Java version of Cold Fusion, oh, so I think it was MX CF5. I think it was CF5. It was a layer certification back at the time. Yeah, I, I mean, still ha I, I had the bag, the green bag with the certification. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a minute. That was like 700 bucks back then, wasn't it? I think I spent – I think it was 500 Back, yeah, in the, it, back in the day, it was not cheap and I didn't study for it. How about that? And I still <laughs> got it. <laughs> I, That's I'm, awesome. I'm embarrassed to say what, what my last certification was in. So let's just move on. CPR? CPR. <laughs> no, that was a good one though. I mean, I did get that one at one point, but yeah. Hey, real quick, before we move on, and I don't want to belabor this too long though. Why didn't we mention languages? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. Why didn't you? I don't know why you didn't. Is it is I, to me? I think it's because like I, hmm. I mean, technically, mine covered. I think my my I've, at least I intended for my answer to cover it. Like if that's what you feel like you're good in, go for it. See, and I think I'm pretty good at languages, but I just don't. I, I don't know. Maybe it's that I want to fill in my knowledge gaps elsewhere. I I think that, well, that I, for some of them, you just don't hear a lot about it. Like Java, maybe Microsoft Technologies, maybe a JavaScript one. I don't you know. know. So, I'll tell you is that the reason is like if I see you know a JavaScript certification from like Udemy or Pluralsight or um, you know, Coursera or something like it makes me think that you spent a weekend with the course and took the test and, and did it and all that's good you know it shows me that you care and you're driven whatever it doesn't tell me that you can program that you can get the job done and you can you know hear a use case and then go off and make it happen. 
But when I hear that someone has like John Calloway from Six Figure Developer uh, just got the Azure DevOps certification, and I know he are, you know, I know he does a lot of work with it. And so when I hear that he's got the certification, it tells me that he went and he looked and zeroed in on the area and made sure that he covered all his bases. Hmm. So if I talk to John and he's consulting with me on a job, I know if I ask him about, you know, something that he just doesn't, there's not like some big missing hole in his knowledge. And it's like, for example, like billing is something that was big on GCP. So like if someone asked me a question about GCP, it's not like I don't know about billing accounts and how that works and how that relates to projects and stuff. So like, you know, like at bare minimum that there's not some big fundamental mis- misunderstanding with how I think about the system. And if you're someone like who codes, say like you, you work with AWS technologies all day long for three years, you may only work with like, you know, S3 and Dynamo and you may know nothing about IAM or the, the networking or any of that stuff. And so I think when, when it comes to technologies, the cloud technology specifically and those kind of infrastructure type ones, it's really important for those people to like show that they've got a, a lay of the land. They've got a, a wide knowledge of that platform and not just like a, you know, a kind of a very narrow view, which can be really dangerous if you hire someone who's only worked with S3 and Dynamo and they're setting up your, you know, billing accounts and like, Maybe they don't know how to use the pricing calculator or don't even know that the pricing calculator exists or something like that. Well, that's where they need flow for the pricing gun. You know what? I think this answer, though, made me realize why I don't think I've ever focused on languages is because what you just said is you're thinking about use cases and outcomes when you're thinking about infrastructure, things in the cloud, that kind of stuff. Just because you know, just because you passed a, a developer certification doesn't mean you know how to program. Right. It just means you know the pieces of language, you know the libraries, you know where to go find things. It, it's, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for me, where I was thinking that, though, was that, like, for some, it's easy to, like, say who the owner of that thing might be to even give the certification out. Mm. So for Java, it's easy for, like, you know, back in the day, Sun and now Oracle to be like, hey, I'm Oracle Java certified or whatever. Right. You know, but if there's no, quote, owner to it, you know, like a JavaScript, then it's kind of like, eh, you went after a Udemy one and it's like, okay, I mean, yeah. Yeah. You, you got uh, the if concept. If it's your first job, you know, if you're like coming out of high school or college or something and then you spent a weekend and got a React certification, yeah. I'm much more impressed by that than the person who just got out of college and didn't do that. Totally. Totally. And, yeah. And, and we're not trying to, we're not trying to downplay people that have gone and gotten their J2EE certifications or anything like that. Right. Like it's, it's not a small amount of work. Um, it's just why I haven't chosen to do it. Yeah. If you, okay. So fair then if you're, if, if you're brand new to it, to, to the industry, then, you know, cert, the certifications might be better. But if you've been in the in- industry for, you know, decades and you're like, hey, I just got a JavaScript certification from you to me, then. Well, I'm not talking. I don't like, know. Like when I said the Kubernetes thing, it was actually a course on how to get certified CNCF Kubernetes. Well, yeah, but that's an infrastructure one. Though. Right. That was, was a, not language. language one, right. Yeah. Right. Like G- getting a certificate for completing a course on Pluralsight or Udemy is probably not what you're aiming for. Yeah. So, all, all right. right. Well, cool. uh, I think we already said that we were going to have the resources in um, this. Ep- you know, the, obviously, we're going to have a link to this book, Designing Data Intensive Applications. But with that, let's get into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's time for a joke. Oh, I got him again. Oh, Oh, one last one. One last one. (laughs) Promise. Last one. (laughs) So, so Arlene 
uh, shared this one with me, and I thought this was pretty good because you know uh, we got springtime coming up, and you're going to want to like get out there and and whatnot, and get active. So um, this was a uh, she sent me a screenshot of a tweet uh, from uh, Dad Joke, yeah, Dad Jokes, and said uh, I made a playlist for hiking. It has music from Peanuts, The Cranberries, and Eminem. I call it my trail mix. <laughs> That's pretty good. (laughs) I like it. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, baby. All right. So seeing as I was missing last episode and got impersonated, or actually the episode before last where I got- There wasn't an impersonation there. That was- That was wrong. All right. So- the first one, uh, I was chatting on Slack, which if you're not a member of our Slack, you should be because it's full of awesome. I was chatting with Stephen Leadbeater, and we were talking about security stuff and certificates and all kinds of randomness. At any rate, he drops this link out there nonchalantly called keycloak.org, and it's amazing. We've talked about if you go to create a side project or any project, you typically need authentication and all that kind of stuff. And it can be a pain in the butt, right? Like you want somebody to be able to log in with their Facebook account or Google or whatever. There's this little thing called Key Cloak that allows you to sort of painlessly do this. And from what I understand, it can run in a container and it can federate your, your authentication and all kinds of things. So check that out. It might make your life a lot easier if you're considering creating some sort of membership type thing or anything that needs some sort of uh, authentication. All right. This one is not developer centric, but for anybody that travels at all, man. So this came from Jamie from the .NET course, .NET core show. Uh, so while I was over in Lennon for the NDC conference, trying to get around uh, in a place where public transportation is the thing and you haven't been there before can be a little overwhelming. Um, they got 50 different lines of railway systems or whatever. And if you're trying to get from point A to point B, it can be really overwhelming. There is an app on iOS and Android, I believe called city mapper. You can go to citymapper.com. It is amazing. And when I say amazing, I cannot, understate that or overstate that enough, I should say, is if I needed to get from, I don't know, wherever I was to another part of London, I could plug it in and it'd give me like eight different ways I could get there. It would tell me the roughly the times, how much walking you had to do, what rails you had to get on, how much money it was going to cost you. Like, so from what I understand, this is only available in like major cities that have, you know, that they have access to some of the infrastructure. So like the railway times, the the subway times and all that stuff. Amazing, like killer application. It it saved me many, many times. And then when you say it's limited, though, you're not kidding, man. I mean, you're talking about like how many cities are 41. Okay. It's big cities, right? But it's mostly, mostly cities with, with public transportation. And one of the key things there is they even had Uber, right? So if you wanted to skip all the public transportation, it would give you prices roughly for what it would cost you to Uber from point A to point B. So that was really killer. I I see a smirk on Joe's face. I don't know what that is. I heard somebody's notifications. Oh, but I can't uh, call them out on it because that also meant that I was chatting uh, <laughs> while we were podcasting. That's awesome. All right. And then here's my last one. I was paying attention there for All what right. it's worth. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. That's fine. Yeah. All right. So here's 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 my last one. And this one's kind of interesting. So you guys 
have heard, or at least if you haven't, you should know of my love for Docker, right? And I use Docker in all kinds of crazy ways. Uh, Outlaw and I were talking about it tonight where he'll use it just so he doesn't have to install software on a system, right? I have very similar type things. Like if I want to run, run Ruby, I don't want to install Ruby 2.6 and 2.7 and 2.5 and, and all those on my system, right? Like I'd rather run a Docker container that has it all in there and I'm good. Well, so being that I'm getting into Kubernetes quite a bit more here of late, one of the things that's interesting is when you're running Kubernetes, one of the the dreams of it is you have this infrastructure and it can deploy containers out to different things, right? That's the whole point of it. Well, when you really dive into Kubernetes, you find out this notion of a node is kind of a server, all right? And then you have containers that run on different nodes. Well, one of the things that always bugged me about running Kubernetes locally, because when you install Docker, you can say, hey, turn on Kubernetes, and that's fine. But you have a one-node server, which really bothered me, right? Like Because some of the cool stuff with, with Kubernetes is you can create taints and things like that on the nodes to where, like, let's say that, for instance, you want to run a database in a Kubernetes cluster, and then you've got your application servers. Well, that database server or that database needs to run on some beefy hardware, right? So you want that thing to run on your most powerful node that you have. And then your application stuff can run on all the other kind of nodes that are that are semi-powered, but they're not crazy powerful. Well, one way you can do this is have multiple VMs on your on your laptop or your home computer. And then you can register those things with your Kubernetes cluster. And then that way you can say, Hey, I want to run my Kubernetes containers on these various different nodes, right? They're all treated as servers. Okay. Well, you can do that. You could totally load up virtual box and then add a bunch of different Ubuntu servers or CentOS or whatever you want, but that's kind of a pain. Ubuntu actually made this thing called multipass. That is really sweet. It's a command line way to spin up VMs quickly and easily. So if you wanted to, say, have four different Ubuntu instances running so that you had four nodes for your Kubernetes cluster, it's basically multi-pass launch and then name it. And you have a VM running. And you can pass in the number of CPUs, the number of RAM you want, and that kind of stuff, and you're good to go. So... This was something I stumbled across. I, I've got to play with it some more, but it's really promising for being able to spin up VMs in a very lightweight way. So those are those are my tips. Oh, do awesome. we? Yeah, it's really cool. I, I was blown away when I saw it. I, I do feel like, um, just to elaborate though on the Docker thing, like I do, I do feel like, and a lot of times I'm like, I use Docker for the dumbest things possible. <laughs> Like everybody will like spin up a Docker container or, or like create a Docker image to be like, Oh, I want to run my app server and I'm going to like install this in it and I'm going to install that in it. And now I'm going to like run it and I can just boom, I can hit it with all these different services and whatnot. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to Docker run for one command so I don't have to install <laughs> whatever it is. I don't want wget on my system. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, and dude, there's a whole slew of Microsoft uh, containers for oh. mimicking Linux commands. Well, we've talked about that. Yeah. Um, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I will definitely have a link to it in the resources we like because um, I want to say his name is something Stephen something. He he like was titled the the Docker captain for Microsoft because he 
we've, we've referenced his repo before of all the different uh, Docker containers or Docker images that he created, Docker files that he has available for all that kind of stuff. And yeah, like I'll be like, oh no, I don't want to install Postgres. So I'll just Docker run uh, Postgres so that I can PG dump some other That's you know it. database and I'm done. Like, you know, yep. why bother to install Postgres when there's a Docker uh, image already available for it? Yep. So yeah, I use it for dumb things. <laughs> no, that, those are amazing my, things. So that's not my uh, my guilty pleasure. Um, okay, so uh, my tip of the week. So one, okay, last episode two two episodes back, uh, Joe and I were talking, and Joe brought up his tip of the week, which was muzzle. Now, do you guys ever? Am I? I can't be the only one that that quite often goes and looks at the source for some of these things. Oh yeah. Okay. okay. Thank God. Yeah. All right. So so muzzle was Joe's tip of the week from a couple episodes back, and if you haven't checked it out already, I cannot stress enough how you need to go to muzzleapp.com because it is hilarious to watch the messages that will fly in. Um, so for Alan's edification, because you weren't. In, on that episode, uh, if you get notifications that are coming in, what Muzzle does is it will automatically silence those notifications on your Mac when you are sharing your screen. So it happens automatically for you. Like Mac OS has the capability to turn off those, you know, to, to get into a do not disturb mode, but this does it for you automatically. And if you notice these messages flying in, they are hilarious, right? And so I, I was curious because I, you know, I was like, man, I just want to read the full list of the messages. Like, you know, I can sit here and watch them come in one by one, but sometimes like, you know, you might blink and you know, oh, it's already gone. And so I just want to like, so I started hunting through the source because I just wanted to read like the full set of messages. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and in doing so, I found this beautiful gem that was hidden in there that I didn't know was a thing until, until now which is a we've talked about um in the past like lipsum lipsum orum lipsum uh lorum ipsum for like uh picture generators as well as text generators right well there's a random user.me site which is a random user generator and what it'll do is it'll just return back like hey here's the name and here's the, uh, you know, if it's male or female, uh, here's a photo for it. So if you wanted to create something random, like what Muzzle has on their app for showing like, hey, you got this notification from uh, Sergio and you want a photo to go along with it, like randomuser.me will give you just, you, you hit it, the API and boom, you'll get back a random call. So, for example, if you were to go to muzzleapp.com and you were to open up your dev tools and you watch your network tab, you will see a bunch of calls coming to uh, uh, randomuser.me and you'll see what I'm talking about with the uh, um, what that payload looks like. And, it, and it's just so awesome. You're like, oh, man, I never knew that was a thing. So if you ever have yourself, if you need random users... For your system, randomuser.me. That's cool. All right, so that's that's my first tip. Uh, then my second one is uh, 
I forget now, maybe it was a couple episodes back. No, I think, cause I think Alan was here for that episode where I had talked about, um, dang, who was it? Was it Russ that told us about it? The, the, the get playing cards. Is that, yes. you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Okay. So, um, I found this other one that, uh, like I gotta have this in my life now. It's a it's a get cheat sheet coffee mug. And uh here it is. Right there for you. But they have these they have these for everything. So you can go to rememberthepi.com and you can find all your favorite things there. And oh, that's cool. They'll just be cheat sheets for whatever. But you know, of course I was gonna like pick out the one for Git. But yeah, there were some great options there and there. So like, uh, let me just see like what were some. Let me go back and refresh my memory of what some of the other ones were. Um, okay, so a Vim cheat sheet. We we've talked about our love of cheat sheets. There was a Regex cheat sheet. Uh, there was a um, well, those would both get. Then they had them in mouse pads, uh, water bottles, like whatever you want. You know, like you want a a travel mug for your coffee instead. They've got that versus the traditional kind of. Uh, um, you know, coffee, you want a, you know, just a notebook, you need some stationery and you want your notebook to like stand out from everybody else. Why not have a get cheat sheet on it? Right. And it's like those, uh, remember the, the, you know, like when you were in school and you would, uh, you get your new notebook and it would have like, Oh, Hey, here's all the tables of conversions for metric, you know, uh, measurements to imperial measurements or temperature measurements or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So now you can have a get cheat sheet on it. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Ooh, there's a Kubernetes one. Oh, was there? I didn't even see the Kubernetes one. Yeah, really? Man. How am, how am I still not seeing the Kubernetes Docker one? Docker CLI, Kubernetes. What? How come you're seeing more cool stuff than I am? I'm on rememberthepi.com slash collection slash mugs. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, computational complexity cheat sheet. Like, yep, big O. Tell there me you go. don't want that in your life, <laughs> right? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Now I see the Docker CLI one. That's great. <laughs> Cron cheat sheet, man. I'm telling oh you. Oh, my gosh. Everybody needs that mug. Everybody. You tell me you remember every position of that. I always forget it. I'm like, wait, is it going from least to most or most to least? Uh, All right. Whatever. Inside my I, dumb I head. I do like That's- a cheat sheet mug delivery service. Like every month you get a different cheat sheet for uh, some sort of tech tool. Oh, yeah. It's oh, amazing. Man. They need to do that. That would be a great Christmas gift for everybody. Um, and okay. So the last one I, that I have here is that uh, Alan actually told me about this one. How did I not know about this already? A. B. How has Alan not used this as a tip of the week? B. <laughs> and C. Forgive me if Alan did use this as a tip of the week and I forgot because I swear I was listening. Um, <laughs> reference to the comment earlier. Yep. But um, in your uh, dev tools in Chrome, if you are, uh, you know, in your JavaScript file, you know, you're trying to debug something maybe, and you know the specific function that you are looking for, you can type Control Shift O, and then it'll bring up a prompt, and you can just type in your method name, for example, and it'll navigate right to it instead of going to it by line number. 
Yeah, I, I was watching Outlaw one day when we, we were trying to figure something out, and he kept doing a control F to go find stuff. And no, no, no. I was doing control G. Control. Oh, you were trying to go straight to the line or whatever. And I was like, hey, dude, just do this. And you type in the method name, and you're right. He's like, oh. <laughs> it's just one of those things. It's muscle memory, right? I've been doing it so long that I don't even think about it anymore. So Very nice. Yeah. All right, All so right. Joe, well, you your guys turn. just did like seven tips uh, <laughs> and uh, maybe eight. Uh, I only have one tip, but it's super good. Probably. So that makes sense. Uh, w- whatever podcast app you're using right now, um, after you finish this episode, <laughs> go and subscribe to Tabs and Spaces. This is a new podcast, but it's super lit. Uh, if you're a member of the Slack, then you've seen uh, many of the the characters around. We got um, it's like an all star cast. It's basically like uh, I want to say like the coding blocks of the UK. <laughs> well, we got Zach Braddy, uh, James, cynical developer, uh, and Geprogman, uh, .NET Core, and Waffling Tailors. Uh, it's an excellent show. They only got two episodes out, but I just tell us a bit amazing. It's going to be amazing. And I see their first episode was 59 minutes. So I feel like, you know, there was a decision there to keep it under an hour. And the second episode is 75 minutes. So I can see that they're on a very similar trajectory to us. <laughs> and they'll be at three-hour episodes in no time. And I'm looking very much forward to listening to it. And it's great. It's conversational style. So I, I'm I'm going to wager that uh, I'll wager a few euros or whatever, pounds, uh, that if you like this podcast, you're probably going to like this too. And you should check it out. Hey, so I haven't listened to it yet. I'm absolutely going to, but I met Zach Braddy and I met Jamie Taylor. Unfortunately, James couldn't make it, but if this, if this podcast is half as entertaining and half as fun as the conversation and, and time that we had talking while I was over there, it, it's gotta be amazing. So yeah, you're going to be cracking up. It's great. That's excellent. Uh, I'm absolutely looking forward to it. And they've even got a sweet looking logo. So that, that helps. yeah, the site's really good. So jerks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait, our site's really good. Oh, <laughs> uh, we can, can, can use a little touch up. <laughs> There's this jam stacking. So uh, ain't, nobody, jelly. ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this, uh, this episode as we've dug into how to, uh, write our databases to disk and retrieve that data. And, uh, you know, this is just the start of this awesome conversation. Next up, we're going to be talking about, uh, sorted string tables and, uh, log structured merge trees and even bee trees. Um, that's when you get like a lot of bees around you. So be careful of those. Uh, yeah. So if you are happen to be listening to us because a friend pointed you out to us on the website or they're, you know, letting you use their device. Uh, you can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. So be sure to uh, subscribe to us there if you haven't already subscribed. So iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast uh, destination might be. And if you haven't already left us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, obviously, you're going to get your name butchered by me. Um, so, you know, I I can only say that, uh, you know, you're welcome uh, for that. You can find... The, some helpful links there to, for to leave those reviews at www at uh, sorry dot codingblocks.net slash review as I remember how the internet works. See, you, you can't mess with the trade. Yeah, see? that's why you couldn't yeah. say it right. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna like make it a Twitter thing or something. That's right. So while you're up there at codingblocks.net, check out our fantastic show notes, discussion examples, and more. And load your feedback, questions, and rants uh, up into a big bag and come and just drop them in a Slack. Boom. 
by going to codingblocks.net slash slack and sending yourself an invite. And uh, make sure you know you can follow on Twitter to at codingblocks or uh, head over to codingblocks.net and you'll find all our social links at the top of the page. Boom. Dude, 33%. <laughs> I wasn't that far off. (laughs) Hey, you can lose and still be a winner. Dude. Oh, man, that's amazing. Bernie taught me that. (laughs) What kind of show did you guys... <laughs> there's two there's two answers there's two under half I was only off by seven <laughs> but it was the majority oh man that's so funny alright <laughs> I think I'm good <laughs> <laughs> I can't has math. <laughs>